There's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. It's a good time to be us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't even know where to start. I guess, uh, did I miss anything? I feel like I, <laughs> I had like a, like a weekend list of things I wanted to write about today. And, uh, and it, you know, it wasn't like extensive. I didn't write anything huge. I just had a few things. We're recording on Monday, the twenty first, and it's like, <laughs> just like in today, there's like so much new stuff that has come out. Like, and and uh, I, I feel like I'm already behind. In other words, I was just watching Pixel review videos all morning. I've hardly even touched the Pixel Four reviews because I was trying to catch up on the stuff that I wanted to write from over the weekend. Yeah. So I read Dieter Bones in The Verge. Didn't watch the video yet. Uh, uh, I don't know what's the consensus. Uh, Dieter's seemed excellent. It also seemed. Uh, well, I'll share my thoughts on it in a second. But what what, would you, what do you take as the consensus? Yeah. So I think the consensus is that. It's got, you know, still got really good stills, uh, disappointing video. The battery life, especially in the small one, was bad enough that a few people couldn't recommend it just based on that alone. Uh, and it, it, it seemed like, I think there was a lot of spoilers that went out before the event. And people were expecting more than the spoilers and they didn't get it. They got slightly less. And the Project Soli was this huge cool you'd be able to twist your fingers in midair and do things and right now you just wave at your phone so it like partially a tech demo but it, it didn't seem like anyone was that blown away by it this year uh yeah i guess i mean it's the that's the it's almost like an uh an interesting experiment in pre-leaking as much detail as you can you know and what yeah. does it what is the effect going to have on a reaction you know i mean and you can uh you know you and i are going to see this through iphone colored glasses uh, just from our perspective but you know there's often when stuff leaks about apple stuff there's sometimes an undercurrent of well who cares it's all just hype or yeah. or the the conspiracy theory of you know that every leak that proves accurate must have been delivered on Apple's part yeah. and they they drip 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 these leaks out as a way of increasing hype which is not true yeah absolutely <laughs> uh, not true and i think part of it is the per i think part of it is just personal i really do think that that from Schiller and Jaws on down in Apple there's just a personal desire to keep this stuff secret and steve you know and, and and the dna of the company is shaped by its founder you know steve jobs absolutely whether you could have mathematically proven to him that there was financial value to be had in pre-leaking stuff he would have said to hell with it i'm not leaking a goddamn thing yeah. i want to tell people about it on stage so part of it is personality wise and part of it though i think is that it is the correct pr strategy to surprise people and to, and to have features come out uh it, it to have the first impression of the 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 features be what you want that first impression to be as the company releasing it as opposed to some random leaker's perspective on it which may or may not be uh positive 
Yeah, and also the talking point after all the events is, oh, there was no surprises. Which, right. you know, sort of like reading the script to Star Wars and then complaining you didn't get any surprises <laughs> right. in the movie. Right. But it, it, that ends up being the buzz after the event. And this one, the Android events are, are weird to me just coming from an Apple background because more and more, and I think Google, maybe for the first time, the event starts and then the hands-on embargo drops because they bring people in before the event even to show them the phone and they shoot video and then they put up their videos and I don't know what to watch. Like I'm watching the event and I see like a like an MKBHD video come out or a Verge video yeah. come out and then I don't know where to put my attention anymore and I think it makes it harder to follow the the events. Uh yeah, I think so uh too. I, uh did you you didn't go to the Pixel event, right? No, I had my colleagues go, but I did order one. Uh, I, I ordered the orange one during the event. I ordered the white one and I'm uh, nice. in the process of selling my Pixel 3. Uh, which is in mint condition. I have to say, I, I did keep it in a case most of the year, mainly because it was always sort of a secondary camera. And so, yeah. and, but there were, you know, were, you know, and I'm, I don't baby my iPhones, but, uh, you know, the, the, one of the knocks against last year's Pixel 3 was that the, the uh, uh, matte finish glass was easily yeah. scratched, that, you know, as, as easily scratched as, uh, like your fingernail and people would be like, yep. well, that's not scratch. That's just calcium from your fingernail rubbing off. And people were like, no, 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 it's actually the, the glass. <laughs> I you don't know. The big one or the small one? No, I always get the small one. Cause I try okay, to, I try to as best as I can buy the one, you know, that I would get if I were going to use it. And, uh, yeah. I, you know, I still prefer the smaller of the iPhone, uh, 10 series phones. And I still would prefer the, the smaller pixel four. Now, again, I saw the initial, uh, reviews, you know, even Dieter's not even, yeah. I don't mean that, that Dieter pointed it out. I mean, in the, even in the sense that I've only read one, <laughs> Yeah. even the one review I read, which happens to be Dieter's mentions that it has a very, you know, it gives, it gives a different rating to both phones. And, and one of the reasons that the XL gets a better rating is that the battery is average in his terms, whereas the battery life on the smaller one is poor. I don't know yeah, why that Android is, Android site, for the first time, said that they couldn't recommend the small Pixel just based on... I don't remember them ever not recommending a Pixel before. Uh, I don't know why uh, the battery life is worse, though. It, it, I don't, I, I'm not quite sure, given how limited my, my review depth is. Are, are people saying it's worse than the Pixel 3 smaller one last year? And if so, I can't understand why it's worse. Because The I, Pixel 3 was terrible. The Pixel 4 is... A small battery, but also they have a, a 90 hertz display, which is sucking down more power. Yeah. And they're doing a lot more of the ML on device, which is sucking down more power. Yeah, those might be the explanations. I thought that the battery life on the Pixel 3 was fine. And, uh, you know, using mostly using the camera, which should be a battery, you know, a draw because the display's on and yeah. uh, it's reading and writing. But we'll see what I think about the Pixel 4. But uh, I bought the white one because uh, I bought the black one last year. And it was too it's too hard to tell apart from all my yeah. black iPhones. <laughs> and so I I needed to buy a color that would be uh, easily distinguishable while they're in front of me. And because I wind up doing things, it's more than just like two phones side by side. Like when the uh, I mean, I, I'm just a mess in September and October. Really, I'm Same. just sort of <laughs> coming down from it because I'm testing multiple new iPhones now from yep. Apple and and I you know as I mentioned uh, talking to um, Ben Thompson uh, on my last episode of the show I really didn't even spend much time with the uh 11 Pro Max 
just yeah. because I, I I did enough to trust to verify that Apple what Apple was saying that this is the same phone just bigger. And once I verified it, then all I did was test the 11 and the 11 Pro because it's just too much. But I've still got it out. It's laying around on my desk, you know, so I've got like new three, two or three new iPhones. I've got my year old iPhone that I'm using as like a baseline to, to measure year yeah. over year. And then I've got the Pixel 3 out to like measure well, how's this night site compared with their night site, et cetera. <laughs> so having them all be black was just terrible. Uh, so I got I the white one. I think it has a nice stormtroopery look, which is what yeah. I sort of think about like the edition Apple Watch, the the yes. ceramic edition Apple Watch. Uh, and I, uh, it's funny, like the orange seems to be uh, in certain photographs. I love orange and black. I went to a high school with colors that were orange yeah. and black. I think orange and black are underrated colors on sports teams. Uh, I do. I think they go very well together. Yeah, uh, they do. Uh, They're the colors I use for vector. <laughs> it's it's a underused combination. I really like it. I think you know, I think orange is sometimes difficult to get right, and but when you do, it it can look great. But I there's sort of a different photographs show the orange in different light. Yeah. You know, some of them look a lot more coral, and some of them don't look coral at all. And I don't really care for coral, so I didn't go that way. I got white. I'm just a sucker for new color, so yeah. I'll almost always get whatever color is new. The thing that surprised me in Dieter's review, though, is you know Google made that big pitch about they have the, the Pixel Neural Core now, and they can do live preview. And what I didn't realize, it was just for HDR+. And I really wanted it for portrait mode. Yeah. Um, and then Dieter responded on Twitter that Google doesn't think that preview on portrait mode is any good. And our mutual friend Matthew Panzerino of TechCrunch had a mini, a mini stroke episode on Twitter right after that. I uh, see. I missed all of this. This is all context that I have missed. Uh, I do know I, that is an interesting philosophical difference between Google's internal Pixel camera team and Apple's. And Apple really, Apple's internal team is very, very keen about doing everything live. Almost and, religious. Yeah. And in fact, that makes the exception that is Deep Fusion notable. Even though it's in my testing, it seems to be uh, well under a second, yep. usually, but noticeable. Like long, longer enough that you wouldn't call it instantaneous, but generally less than a second and you can sort of see a little update in the you know you snap your picture the deep focus post-processing takes place and then the preview little avatar icon whatever you want to call it updates um so that's not live in the camera but uh just about everything else is and and apple even goes to great lengths now they can't it's it's matt you know the, the definition of the feature means that nights night night mode yeah. is can't be done live because it's it's a multiple second exposure from when you begin it. So without the ability to travel into the future a few seconds, there's no way to do it. But yet the, the live, what you do see in the viewfinder on the iPhone 11 and 11 Pro for night mode is remarkably close to what you end up getting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not quite sure even how they do that. Whereas that has absolutely been, I don't have a Pixel 4 yet in hand. I've pre-ordered, we'll be here soon. But the Pixel 3, as much as they deserve kudos for their night sight last year, the live version of it was garbage. Yes. Yeah. It was really and bad. I, I mean, you really... I like it for portrait mode because I can, with, if it's messing around with the glasses or the ears, I can just move it a little bit and it fixes it before I waste time taking photos. You, you could use it for composition, 
but yeah. it, it was absolutely useless in terms of finding out what is what is the end result going to look like. Now, that was it better to have the feature than not have it. Sure, I, you know it. I but I can also see why in that state Apple wouldn't have shipped it. Apple would say that's yeah. that's not ready to go because we want it to be a reasonable representation. Uh, anyway, I thought that the whole framing of Dieter's review, my take on the Pixel all along, ever since they they rebooted their internal this this is the Google and this is Google's Android phone from the Nexus yeah. line to the Pixel line. And I think it's worth treating as a new line. Like they changed philosophically in my opinion, not just it wasn't just a, a rose by any other name. Like they took a lot more in-house. It really wasn't it's it, the Pixel phones are a lot more than just pure Android, which is what the Nexus yeah. phones were. Um they really are Google's version of Android by taking Android and googling it up extra degrees. I've always felt that at a basic level the pixels are android phones for people who like iphone hardware that it's not that they're copies you know but they are the pixel phones have always been a lot more iphone like putting aside what you see in the software which is the ios versus android but just treating them as hardware devices uh Boy, they're very iPhone-like. They're iPhone-like in dimension. They're iPhone-like in feel, sort of. Varying. Some of the earlier ones were very similar in design. Yeah. Uh, you know, they've always put the, the camera in the upper left corner of the back, which seems like a little thing, but an awful... Especially three, four years ago, a lot of high-end Android phones still had the camera centered in the back. Yeah, many of them still do. Uh, they still do. You know, and that, those are all, you know... Uh, you know, diff but it's just, you know, at a basic level, it just sort of looks like, boy, if you could just run iPhone on an a Android on an iPhone, that's sort of the pixel aesthetic. Uh, so for me, they've always been curious because my understanding is that there was a sort of a shakeup in Google leadership and one of the people in charge really wanted an iPhone. They just wanted Google to have an iPhone. And they started putting a lot of the elements in place from internal design groups. They bought HTC. Well, they brought HTC design in-house. In um, they started working on their own silicon. They started doing a lot of things to make an iPhone. But at the same time, they never made the same kind of choices Apple would. Like they never, or even Huawei or Samsung, they never put great camera hardware on there because they figured their camera software was so great they could do with you know a less capable camera and they you know they had a lot of trouble with screens so they, they didn't make the manufacturing choices that apple would make but they still sort of wanted an iphone and then over the last year some of those initiatives didn't really work out the way they hoped so now it just feels like they want a platform to showcase the best of google algorithms and software right. oh and they're definitely keen on the camera angle i mean there's no yeah. doubt about it and they deserve it but it, you know, you, it it sort of feels this year too. And again, I didn't read all the reviews, so I'm not sure what what they're going to say. But it, it it seems like yet last year was a real high point for their ability to do stuff computationally. You know, Night Sight in particular would be the the shining. And Super the, Zoom was another good example. Yeah, Super Zoom was another good example. Um, where they do digital zoom, but by taking multiple exposures and running it through a neural net. And it's a great, to me, it's a great example of 
how this AI stuff really does deserve to be treated as a different sort of computing than, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's like, there's all sorts of algorithms that are supposed to make things seem smarter. You know, is it AI? No, not in a classical sense, you know, but using a more efficient sorting algorithm when you have to sort something, if it makes, you know, your spreadsheet faster when you're reordering 10,000 columns of data by having a more efficient sort algorithm, you know, that's just classic computer science of being faster and stuff like this. Whereas the way that they're doing the super zoom isn't really a human thinking, well, if yeah. this pixel is this color and this next pixel in a, in a 10th of a second later exposure is within 10%, then do this and that. It really is just sort of feeding this into a machine learning model and, you know, by telling it this looks better, this looks worse, and then you feed these things in there, all of a sudden they come out with a way to very quickly, using, you know, the dedicated chips for this, do a digital zoom that is just seemingly way, way better than you could expect to get out of a digital zoom. Yes, absolutely. Um, but it feels like this year they're on a downside, even though they've added, you know, extra hardware by adding a two X telephoto lens and going beyond one, uh, camera lens on the back. So they've definitely added hardware. It just feels like this is a down year for their sort of, will we'll do most, most of the benefit will come from our computational stuff and we don't have to worry so much about the actual hardware. Like ideally you want both. And I feel yes, like, absolutely. Cause you also, I mean, you can tweak, like Apple is adding, um, uh, deep fusion and they can tweak battery algorithms and they can tweak, but right. you can't go to everybody's house and put a better camera system on their phone. You can't go to everybody's house and stick a bigger battery in. you need a baseline. The better the hardware, the better the software is going to work. And that's the balance they seem to be struggling with. Uh, and you know, and Apple is really doing some impressive stuff with video. I mean, and that's always been the, uh, the weak spot Android wide, but pixel in particular, yeah. you know, that the video stuff just how, you know, whatever you want to, wherever you want to argue, they rank on still mobile phone photography on video. It, everything from Android is way behind iPhone. Uh, I mean, nobody else does 4k 60 yet, or, or maybe with some, I think Samsung does. Yeah, maybe some think they do the interleaved extended dynamic range. At 60 yeah, yeah. Put an asterisk there and it's okay. Maybe they do, but it's not great. Um, like you pointed, I got it from you and gave you credit when I linked to it, but Jonathan Morrison, you know, well-known, uh, yeah. uh, Twitter or not Twitter, but, uh, YouTube personality, um, who does great work and usually shoots with, you know, really truly professional camera rig. Yeah. Um, um, An Ari Alexa Mini, which is like I think eighty five thousand dollars. It's just you know as good as it gets. Uh, yeah, you know it's super pro uh, filmmaker style kit. Had a video with his first thoughts on the Pixel Four, and he shot the whole thing not just with the iPhone eleven, but with the iPhone eleven front facing camera, and it's yeah. clearly um, sixty frames per second. It probably clearly 4K, but I looked at it on a 13-inch MacBook, yeah. so I don't know if I could. I'm not 100 percent sure that I could peg moving video as 4K versus 1080 on a screen that size. But you can definitely tell 60 frames per second. Yeah. Um, and you know, just totally. Uh, I, if I didn't know it in advance, I don't think I would have guessed. And and then at the very end of his video, he had some like 
meta shots showing him shooting yeah. it, showing that he shot it with the front facing camera. Like I don't see well, he how was, he was joking on Twitter when Google announced that he said their the iPhone selfie camera now shoots better video than the main camera on the pixel it really does i mean it's actually i mean at least by some measure there may be some ways that the that the bigger sensor on the rear-facing camera uh, there might be some scenarios where you get better video on the rear and facing they do have really good like their algorithms for color and balance and for um stabilization are amazing like they have again amazing algorithms but today i think they put out a statement saying they didn't do 60 frames per second because they thought <laughs> they thought it was a waste it was too much storage <laughs> And that's my biggest problem with Pixel in general is that Google doesn't have a strong opinion. They, in the first Pixel, they said, we don't need a camera bump. Second year, like, oh, we need a camera bump. We don't need new camera. We don't need two cameras. Oh, we need two cameras, but we don't need a wide angle. And you just know next year they're going to add a wide angle. And it's the same. We, we, have a, we have a chin and a forehead because we want two front-facing speakers. That's really important to us. And this year they put the speaker right where the iPhones is. And, and it, it feels like they sort of go halfway and then rationalize it and then change their mind the next year. And I just want them to be super opinionated about what they want a phone to be yeah uh i would have i would have encouraged them to go notchless last year as well yeah like i feel like what they've done this year where they instead of having a notch it it just goes across the top and so there's you know in that chin forehead terms they have have a forehead small by historical forehead sizes but still a forehead that's effectively the height of you know what a notch would be yeah. on an iPhone 10 or any of the other phones <laughs> that have curiously come out with notches since the iPhone 10 um it has a bit of a chin but not it's not anywhere close to the height of the forehead so iPhones yeah. have always been symmetrically designed so that when you hold them sideways the chin if it has a chin and forehead it 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 matches and if it doesn't have a chin or forehead it's the same bezel size all the way around um I think that that's a better design than the weird, ugly-ass notch that, that the Pixels had last year. And last year, the notch was only on the bigger one. The smaller one right. didn't have a notch. Right. So, like, did they have an opinion on notches? Right. Did they do one with a notch just because they wanted to support it in Android and figured they had to do it themselves? I, I don't understand their opinion still. Yeah, and they obviously didn't spend a lot of work last year on the corner radius of the rounded-off no. screen. <laughs> sort of like a first-pass shibit. And this year, it's gestures. I mean, uh, they're sort of like the iPhone, but they don't work the same as the iPhone, and they just end up confusing. It's it's always a little bit of halfway. Yeah, I got to say, I'm not... I, I mean, I'll try it. I want to prejudge it but uh, the the what they're doing the radar stuff with does not interest me really i don't really i, I can't imagine like it's so they have a feature now that you can wave your hand without touching the phone and do a couple things one of Motion them is sense. you can fast forward tracks if music is playing by just passing your hand over it uh you can it it the useful one seems to be that it'll sense when your hand gets near and fire up their face recognition sensors so that before you're even pointing it at your face they're already looking because they know your hand has entered you know the little sphere of three-dimensional space above the phone and i guess you can tickle your pokemon or something on yeah. your home screen by just waving at it which really seems weird the, the whole thing in there was odd to me too i i think it's a good idea to warm up the camera if it detects you but Apple had the iPhone 11 event, and they have a U1 chip in the iPhone 11, and they didn't mention it because there's no compelling user-facing feature yet. On their product page at the bottom, it says, "Yeah, it'll help you with AirDrop," but the the obvious front face, the oh, sorry, the obvious computer consumer-facing feature hasn't shipped yet, so they stayed mum. Where with this, it feels like they don't. 
it's nothing like the early demos. The early demos showed people doing very fine-grained controls of radios yeah, and video yeah. and all these things, and none of that is ready. So I, I would have just completely downplayed it, just not mentioned it yeah. very much at all. And everyone left being disappointed, like, oh, it wasn't as good as the demo. Right. It was the... It, their their white papers on the technology, or I don't know if that's their official term, but they've you know they've talked about the technology for years, and that they make it sound as though it's as fine grained as like the touchscreen itself, right? So yeah. like in the way and the videos showing it, yeah. So like you know you can uh, if you're adjusting the volume on your phone by using the slider in your finger, and you have this incredible fine grained control, yeah. they're, they're showing it that you could just hold your finger above the phone and get the same thing. Whereas all they really have here is simple broad stroke fast forward next track type thing. which aren't working consistently if you look at the reviewers yeah. somewhere i think marquez was saying it worked 10 percent at first he's figured out how to make it work 60 percent right. of the time and that's not a flagship feature no but that's terrible i, I think anything that's less than 100 percent is terrible and it gets me to uh i mean i have complaints about apple stuff that works like that yes. too you know same uh, uh i'm trying to think of of a good one uh I mean, a lot of the stuff with iOS 13 is just still kind of busted. Yeah, I'm trying to think of it. I have, I have it, off the top of my head, I can't think of it, but maybe some uh, some Apple TV type interactions are pretty good. Like it's it. I even though I use Apple TV all the time, me using that little remote to move the selection around the screen, I'm still not as precise as I think I should be. That's a that's but, for example one you know. One example. The I big one for me on Apple TV is apparently the the longer you press, it's whether it'll shoot you back to the episode selector or all the way back to the screen. And I could never get that right. So I would just always yep. try to go, no, wrong episode, try to go back, oh, I'm back on the home screen, play the episode again, oh, I'm back on the home screen. Right. It was like a, a random frustration generator. Oh, I could think of a good example. A good example is the 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 keyboard problems people are having on MacBooks yeah. where even if your keyboard isn't completely failed, like if it's just that like, you know, uh, one time out of 50 you'd hit the e key and get two e's instead of one e and it's only one out of 50 that's terrible that's absolutely yes. unacceptable it has to be every time like when you click an okay button in the dialogue it has to click every time yeah so like trying to do next track with a gesture and the gesture only works 60 percent of the time that you'll you'll i mean 60 percent is so low that you'll stop using the feature there's no way even just like siri still like if i tell it to call my mom nine yeah. out of ten times is perfect the tenth yeah. time it recommends a um sorry a veterinarian yeah. across town from me and yeah then it's just, you have learned helplessness yeah siri is a perfect example of that too where there's and there's just stuff and and to me the bar for that is a little bit different than uh a physical UI, right? Like a button that you tap on a touchscreen or click on a mouse-driven interface uh, or a keyboard shortcut you invoke to do it is is yeah. very, very... Um, it, it, it's provable whether it worked or didn't work yeah. exactly as expected in the, with the latency you expect. Whereas the Siri stuff is always going to be a little nebulous as to, you know, that where the edge conditions lie. But for the most part, to me, I think that the standards by which we should judge Siri and the similar voice assistants is basically what if you hired a college kid to be your intern? Yes. Would, you, would you expect <laughs> them to understand what you just said? And if you, you know, if so if you hired a, a, somebody to be your assistant and follow you around and you're like, you wanted to call your mom and you don't want to touch the phone, you're like, get my mom on the phone, right? You expect your mother to be on the phone every single time. You don't expect Absolutely. to be, have like a pizza place open up. 
<laughs> Did you right? see Joanna's video for the Pixel uh, this morning? Yeah, with the speed talker? Yeah, she's always so creative with those videos. And she put the, because the new Google voice recorder also transcribes. Right. So, of course, she got someone with a Scottish accent, with a West Indian accent, with a German accent. I think a transatlantic, yeah, maybe, or Australian or something, and the world's fastest talker, and just let them all loose on it. Yeah, the world's fastest talker, or or fastest woman talker. I'm not quite sure if she has the the record, but that was... uh, That was just cruel, but the stenographer kept up, which was amazing. Yeah, I will. Yeah, and yeah, she had a a professional court stenographer there as like the uh, the Paul Bunyan, yep, the 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 real life flesh and blood alternative. Uh, Anyway, that is a killer feature. I have to say, for me personally, as somebody who occasionally, somewhat occasionally, needs or wants transcription, boy, that's a fantastic feature uh, that I wish. I hope the iPhone can uh, follow as quickly as possible. Uh, yeah, well, someone pointed out well. that Clips does a little bit of that, so hopefully Apple can flesh that out into a full-fledged. Yeah, but something like that you, if you have a, an on-the-record meeting as somebody in the press, or if you're a student yeah. and you want to record a lecture or something, you know, that you can, that if you can hear it and understand it, your iPhone can hear it and transcribe it. And the other thing that was baffling for me is that they Google they have the brand new Google Assistant. It's only available in the U.S. for now, which you know that happens. That's fine. But if you have a Google Apps account, doesn't matter if it's first account, second account. If you just as long if you have one on, the assistant will not work. What? If you yeah, if you have a Gmail account, it's fine. But if you but if you have a Google Apps account or a Gmail account and a Google Apps account, the assistant just will not work. Oh, that's a strange limitation. And they said they're working on a fix, but it always seems like Google Apps accounts, which people pay for, right. get way shorter shift than the Gmail accounts. Wow, that's really weird. And it also seems like the sort of problem you'd more expect from Apple, you know, with yeah. the various ongoing problems that those of us with two iTunes accounts, yeah. you know, iCloud accounts, whatever you want to call them, Apple IDs uh, still get, you know. If, if you're, I don't want to go on a whole sidetrack, but basically, I, among other old, the longer Me you've too. been using Apple products, the more likely you are to be in this boat, where you opened up a iTunes Store account in the early two thousands uh, with email address A, and then later on with Mac dot com created a Mac dot com or Me dot com account uh, to use mac.com features but that's not your not the same thing you use for itunes and still low these many years later in 2019 you've still got two separate accounts because there's no way to merge them uh yeah which i understand would be incredibly complicated and and you know that there's all sorts of edge conditions you could run into there because if i want to i can go to a new machine and log in with my itunes account and it is an apple id so i could use iMessage and note syncing and calendar syncing all from that account from and you know i'm sure there's some people who are somehow using two different things and so merging them would be complicated you know on the surface, it sounds like, geez, why can't I just say I would like to just use my iCloud account for everything and transfer all the iTunes accounts from this other account over in a one-time transition, and then that's that. Uh, but I get it. That's complicated. But anyway, living life like that is always a little bit more complicated yeah. than the people who have it all in one. You don't know how lucky you are if you only have one. <laughs> it's, good <to> know, <laughs> it's good to know Google has problems like that, too. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I thought I thought Dieter's basic opening is the, the 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 framing of his of his review read very iPhoney to me as well. So I've always thought that that 
that the pixels were as a whole the whole project is sort of google's take on iphone style hardware with stuff like screens that aren't super saturated uh less blingy more understated design um you know there is a sort of designed in california look to their stuff too that's different than stuff that's designed in korea or china uh or japan you know with some of sony's very cool stuff um Dieter's review, though, made it almost it almost read like the opening to like, what kind of product is he reviewing here? You'd almost think it was an Apple product because it was about how specs don't tell the story of the product. And you can't just look at the specs. You have to kind of look at the actual experience and you could say, well, this phone doesn't have the fastest processor and it doesn't have the greatest camera hardware. But you look at the actual photos you get from it and they look better than Than other ones, the other phones that might on on paper seemingly have a better camera. No, that's absolutely true. Huawei and Samsung both have tremendous some some of the Nokia stuff, tremendous optics on them, and they just they junk them up with really bad color science, really poor color management. The cameras look different from one system to the other, and yeah, or they overblow them with AI, what they call their AI modes, and they oversaturate them. And Google, you can like I think if you look at them, you can subjectively choose which one you prefer because at this point they're both so good. It's the artistic choices. Like Google's tend to look cooler. Um, Apple's tend to look a little bit warmer. They do different stuff with the details. Their semantic rendering is slightly different, but that that is just personal preference at this point. And it's amazing we've gotten to the point where it comes down to that. Yeah, there's definitely you can definitely see the different internal uh, aesthetic choices in there. Yeah. Um, so what else with the Pixel? I had another thought. Oh, I guess we could talk about the uh, the lens decisions. Why don't we hold on to that, though? And I'll, I'll do the sure. first sponsor break and uh, tell you about our good friends at Away. Away makes excellent carry-on and larger suitcases. Uh, they've considered all sorts of travelers, and with their carry-on, now offered in two sizes— with an optional ejectable battery, you can find a carry-on suitcase that will suit your needs and your lifestyle perfectly. Uh, they've got two, two body types, their signature polycarbonate and the fancier anodized aluminum, and both are guaranteed for life. Their suitcases are lightweight. The polycarbonate is very, very durable. The aluminum, of course, is durable. Everybody knows the, the qualities of aluminum. Uh, the removable battery is just a game changer for me because it is, it just turns out that the top of your carry on suitcase is like just the best place to keep a big, uh, TSA compliant, uh, battery right there. Whoever thought we'd be charging our suitcases, but there you are. But anyway, the, the battery that they include is so so capable. I think it has five times of a, an iPhone, iPhone charge. You don't really – it's not like you have to charge your suitcase every time you leave. I charge it like once or twice a year. That's it. And then every time I'm waiting in an airport, I've got two USB ports right there on top of my suitcase to charge me or, and one of my traveling companions' devices right there while we wait. No more hunting in the airport for one of like three seats that happen to be next to a, a power outlet. No more being a dirty bum and the sitting on the floor of the airport just because it's right there next to an outlet. Charge it from anywhere. Uh, inside the suitcases, they have an internal compression system lets you pack more. Um, sounds like BS, but it's actually true. It's it's really a great way. They got a little section there where you can put folded up shirts, cinch them down with like a, a hard panel, very easy. And then you get to where you're going, and your your shirts aren't all wrinkled up. 
the wheels on the suitcases are fantastic. Really durable. I've had one, as long as you can remember, away sponsoring this show. They sent me a suitcase way back when. Uh, mine still feels and looks like brand new. It is amazing. It truly, their durability is not to be underestimated. Um, so we've got a couple of them now in the house. They all look great. I've got my original. Still looks brand new. No interest in upgrading or changing. I don't need to. Why, why would I do that? It still looks brand new. I take it everywhere I go. Uh, really love it. Here's the deal they have for talk show listeners. 20 bucks. Save 20 bucks by going to awaytravel.com slash talkshow20 and just use that same promo code talkshow20, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-W-2-0 and use it during checkout. You'll save 20 bucks. That's awaytravel.com slash talkshow20. Uh, really great product. Love it. Uh, so there was a, a story, another story at The Verge. Uh, I think it was like right after the iPhone 11 events by Sam Byford. It was like, uh, I think literally said that, that Apple needs to needed to catch up to Android this year, uh, <laughs> on the camera. And it's taken as a point. It had been taken as a point of just fact for like the last year that the pixel three was a better camera than the iPhone 10 S. Vlad was writing that a lot as well. Uh, and I, I disagree. I really do. And, you know, I might say, uh, you know, Neil and I talked about this a few weeks ago on, on yeah. the verge crash. Like, I feel like the differences were, they were real and I could see why subjectively somebody would prefer the pixel three for still photography. But objectively, I think that there were plus and minuses on both sides and, you know, night sight was the one feature the Pixel 3 had for a year that the iPhone XS couldn't do. But it wasn't, a, you know, how often do you need it? And, and you know, I, I don't know. It, and I mean, the iPhone it was, had portrait mode before Google did it, but right. it didn't seem to have such big a reaction. <laughs> right. You know, there's, there's things that the iPhone still camera could do that the yeah. Pixel couldn't. And it, for just regular photography... I think it was debatable, but I the thought the biggest that... thing for me is that we went to CES and I was shooting with an iPhone, and everyone from our Android team started off shooting with a Pixel, but the camera just wouldn't launch. They would miss the shot, and the video would drop frames. And by a day in, they'd all switch to Samsung and Huawei phones because it didn't matter how good the camera was if it couldn't get the shot for yeah. them. And I think that's one of the most underappreciated aspects of a camera. Uh, yeah, and that was a knock against the Pixel Three too with startup time. And that yeah. you and, and you know we've all been in that situation and and we've all at times even I've I've even wondered whether Apple should make you know should they add a dedicated phone button and I can see why they don't uh, the Nokia phones back in the day yeah. had a dedicated shutter button just for the camera and launching it um, but we've all been in that situation where there's oh my god there's something cute or amazing or whatever going on I don't need to get my camera fired up as fast as possible and you really don't want that to be delayed. Um, but I thought the the other thing it was sort of a, uh, it's a a well known trope that the Macalope observes very keenly was <laughs> that the the gist of Byford's explanation of how the or, or or assertion that the iPhone needed to catch up on the phone or, or on the camera 
was by citing at least three different Android phones. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it didn't have night sight, which the Pixel did. It didn't have an ultra wide lens, which the, these Huawei and and other brand phones did. And it didn't have something else that some other phone did. But none of those three phones have the three features. You know what I mean? Like you could say, yeah. quote unquote, Android had these three features, but you had to have three different phones to have all three features. And it's just a sort of a classic gotcha of comparing the Apple ecosystem to Windows back in the day to to Android in recent years. Um, and I thought that the extra lens thing was particularly rich if you're going because usually people held up the Pixel as the best Android camera phone, you know, yeah. and I, I think with good reason. Um, but if, you know, on those grounds, clearly it was, it was the Pixel that needed to catch up and now still needs to catch up. It still only has two lenses even at the highest lens. At the highest, yeah. at the highest version, and again, I don't say that that proves that the iPhone is ahead. I'm just saying I think it requires a much more nuanced, nuanced discussion. Uh, and I think that the the certainty that some Pixel aficionados feel that they have the best still camera phone is maybe not warranted. Yeah, it's very uh, subjective. Uh, which brings me to this discussion of okay, if you're going to add. Like the standard lens on a modern cell phone camera is pretty consistently uh, in field of view at what in 35 millimeter terms would be around a 26 to 28 uh, millimeter lens. And there's a good, good argument to be made that we should kind of get away from those terms anymore. Yeah. And Apple certainly has. Apple doesn't really describe them. Apple just calls them 1x, 2x, and now 0.5x, which is a better way of thinking about it. And field of view, which is measured in an angle. In other words, what's, what what angle from the from the lens pointing forward is captured in the sensor is makes more sense than just using 35 millimeter sensor film terms, especially as we, as 35 millimeter sensors become a smaller and smaller part of the camera landscape. Um, so what we call a one X lens on most of these cameras is very, very similar in field of view. Just, just yes. a tiny fraction. You know, the iPhone is a little bit wider than the pixel was last year. I don't know how they compare this year, but like if you set a pixel three, and an iPhone XS up last year, you could, if you knew what to look for, if they were set up at the exact same location, you could tell instantly which one was which because the iPhones would be a little bit wider. So you'd capture a little bit more information along this the sides of the, the, the image. So depending on the, the subject you were photographing, you could just see it if there's a little bit more. Like I think if you really wanted to do a, a side-by-side, uh, like double-blind, which one do you like, part of it would have been you'd have to crop the iPhone yeah. pictures like one or 2% and do like a center crop just to get the same field of view. Um, if you're going to add a second lens and now everybody's adding second lenses because it's it just the physics of these devices and that, you know, how thin they need to be. I mean, you at, at least in the near future, there's no way to make a zoom lens, meaning a lens that adjusts from, these different fields of view. So if you want to get the effects of a zoom lens, the advantages, meaning to be able to go even wider or to zoom in more without, uh, without resorting to digital zoom, you need second 
and third camera lenses. Um, I kind of feel and and did you watch the the Pixel Four event? Yes, I forget the guy's name. Do you know the guy's name who's like their camera guy? Oh, it's Mark. Oh, I'm blanking on his name too. He's the guy who made all those computational, well, that original computational photography app. Yeah, it, he's a very day. smart guy. I think he was a little salty about the ultra wide lens. <laughs> lens <Yeah>. thing. <laughs> like I kind of feel like Google got caught with their uh, just caught maybe making the wrong decision on that front, and that Mark Lavoy. Mark Lavoy. I'm going to have to write this down. Um, um, and I really think that Apple made the right decision now that the non-pro $799 new iPhone has two lenses. Instead of following in the footsteps of the iPhone 10 and 10s and going telephoto as the second lens, they, it, it only goes ultra-wide. I think that's the right move for most people. Uh, I think it's also the right move for the non-pro phone, and I, you know, and I'm on the record as saying we don't have to worry so much about what pro means in the parlance of an iPhone Pro. It really can just mean iPhone Premium, uh, yes, whether it's professional or not. But the truth is, as just a basic rule of thumb, the wider the lens, the more fun it is. Right, and you can get, you know, some actual comical uh, effects with the ultra wide by having a subject really close, and it exaggerates it. Uh, and then the longer the lens, the more serious it is. It just gives you a more serious feel. That's why the portrait yeah. lens, you know, uh, defaults to the two X perspective. It just is a more staid. Uh, perspective. I remember reading an interview once with. Uh, Billy Crystal, and he was talking, I forget who directed the movies, but I think it was about City Slickers too. Remember City Slickers? Okay, and then yeah. there was, City Slickers was a smash hit and, and, and was a big, big hit and made Jack Parlance, who was the, the, the crufty old cowboy, became a, you know, had been like a big star in the 50s and 60s. All yeah. of a sudden he became big star again. And then they made a sequel and uh, sequel wasn't so good. <laughs> And yeah. the story I heard was that Billy Crystal was talking, they had a new director for it, and he was talking to somebody else, I think like Rob Reiner, who wasn't involved with it. And he was just like, uh, from the set, and he was just like, so I could be butchering this anecdote, but I know it was Billy Crystal, and I know it was, I know it was City Slickers too. May or may not have been Rob Reiner. But anyway, he was talking to somebody who he trusted as a director of comedy, and he said, hey, you always told me that wide-angle lenses are funny. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's real. If you want something to be funny, you got to put a wide angle lens on the camera. And he goes, well, this guy's not putting up. This guy's shooting everything with a long lens. And it was just like crickets on the other end of the phone. And then Billy Crystal was like, yeah, I thought so. <laughs> it is, though. But it, it, it's true. It, yeah. it really is fun. And I think just reading it, I, I think I have read more people on Twitter who seem less, you know, prosumery photo enthusiasts types and just more casual i just shoot photos they seem to be using the wide angle lens more than than i saw people using the telephoto lens in the whole two years when when the iphone if you had two lenses or i guess three years maybe where if uh the iphone had dual lenses the second lens was telephoto yeah, you know, I think that's really true, and it's it's interesting to me because I would shoot a lot with the telephoto lens, but mostly because I wanted the bokeh, and it gets a much nicer natural bokeh than 
the other lens than the the ultra wide angle lens. But you can computationally deliver telephoto. Google did it last year with the Pixel Three and Super Zoom. That's essentially what they were doing was making a computational telephoto lens. Uh, but you can't do that with ultra wide angle because you don't have the extra data. It just is it doesn't exist. Right. So putting even on an iPhone eleven, not the Pro, you have the wide angle and the ultra wide angle. Uh, you can still do a zoom. I wish Apple would put the button on there because I think it's a better user experience to just do the the 2x button. But you can zoom in and it's still a usable shot. You cannot zoom out on a pixel. And I think that's a loss. And when I look at a lot of the Android reviewers, because like you mentioned, not, not a lot of the phones used to have every option, but now a Huawei phone, a Samsung phone, all of them have ultra wide, all of them have night mode, and it's pixel that stands out for not having everything. Yeah. Uh... Ben Rubenstein, who's the developer behind the excellent Halide app, along with his yeah. his uh, colleague uh, Sebastian DeWitt, who's the designer of the app, uh, did some interesting work last year on uh, just comparing the 1X camera doing a 2X digital zoom versus – yeah, Ben uh, uh, Sandowski is his name. Well, I forget how I mispronounce it. Sorry, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> But Ben Sandowski, really smart developer, really knows his stuff, really found that in a lot of surprisingly well-lit well lit but indoor lighting conditions, a 1X camera with two with a 2X digital zoom uh, using a smart zoom algorithm would get you a better image than using yeah. a 2X camera with a slower lens, meaning yeah. slower meaning works worse with less light. Uh you know, digital. The gist of it being, digital zoom has gotten better than you think. And in the old days, when digital photography was new, it was like, don't ever resort to digital <laughs> zoom. You know, unless you really, really have to, because it just looks like muddy, blurry pixels at every level. Whereas it's gotten better, and like you said, you can do it. However, whatever the trade-offs are of doing a digital zoom, it it's still certainly getting you that frame. Of view, whereas there's absolutely no way to fake a 0.5 x lens field of view. And I don't uh, think most people notice because on the iPhone, it will switch between the real telephoto and sort of a faked telephoto if, if it gets into lower light. And I don't know how many people actually notice when it's doing that because nope. when I point it out, they're super surprised. No, and nobody nobody noticed. Uh, I mean, all of us, we wrote, uh, not maybe somebody noticed, I don't know, but I even wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago about how when you're in night night mode on the iPhone 11 yeah. Pro, it always uses the 1X camera lens. So if you're doing 2X in in night mode on the 11 Pro, it's using the 1X sensor and doing a digital zoom along with the interpolation of multiple exposures, yeah. you know. Um, and nobody, you know, nobody really caught on to that. And there was a bit of Apple not wanting to talk about how it worked, which was weird and should have raised and it a flag. People, because if you did get the telephoto lens, it looked like night mode didn't work. And then when right. you didn't get it, it looked like night mode worked. And you couldn't figure out why right. sometimes it right. would work at two X and not others. And it was right. just confusing. Yeah, uh, and you can you can always prove this, and it's just the simplest, most obvious thing in the world. If you're ever confused as to which camera lens your iphone is using for a quote 2x shot just yeah. cover one of the lenses with your finger and you can yeah. actually see it you know happen um basically i think that the confusion is that apple in some ways presents the new the new camera zoom interface with these separate buttons on the iphone 11 you get a 0.5 and 1x buttons but no 2x button and then on the iphone 11 pro you get three buttons 0.5 1 and 2x and 
at some level they want you and i think overall they've really achieved i think that the camera team at apple is doing some of the best user experience work in the industry Uh, it is in terms of what they're doing with the user interface and and exposing a little bit more complexity but in ways that don't get in the way of using the camera in the most simplistic way possible, which they know is what most people do is open the camera, make sure you're either in camera or video mode and then hit the button. Right. (laughs) That's what people do. And they've really not gotten in the way of that, but they've really exposed what you can do in a very, you know, very useful ways. Um, there's a little bit of conflation there, though, where they really want you to treat it as one camera yep. that you can zoom in and out of. And you don't have to worry about the fact that there are three physical cameras on the back. It's just one camera app, and it just zooms in and out like the way a point-and-shoot camera can zoom in and out. you know. And you don't have to worry about it, that it's technically three different cameras and three different sensors and three different uh, maximum you know exposure speeds and stuff like that you don't have to worry about it it'll just do what you needs to do to to get the best image at the perspective you're looking for um but at the other hand they still there is some aspect of it whereby only having the 2x button on the one that has the 2x lens physical lens it kind of makes you feel that hitting that button is giving you that camera that physical camera agreed it, whereas that's not the case. It's really just about the field of view. And it just means yeah. 0.5 is always going to give you the 0.5 camera because there's no other way to fake it. 1X is always going to give you the 1X camera because if it, it's the best camera, period. So if you want the 1X field of view, it's never going to be better by cropping the other the other uh, images. The 2X, though, is the mystery, where sometimes it if you're outdoors and there's lots of light, it's going to give you the 2X camera physically, but indoors it may not, and if night sight, it never will. Yeah. But that's, that's okay. The other interesting thing for me is that there's, there's almost like this battle inside Apple, because on one hand, they exactly what you said, they just want it to be a camera. You pick it up, you shoot, you don't worry about it. But on the other hand, some of the technology is so cool, they can't resist talking about it. So I think like in a perfect world... They wouldn't really talk about deep fusion. It would just be the camera shoots and it gives you the best possible image based on when you're shooting. And over time, right now we have smart HDR and we have deep fusion and we have night mode and they're distinct and it switches between them. But over time, it's probably going to do some amount of each of them depending exactly on where you are in the continuum of lighting and they will be less distinct. But for right now, people keep asking, well, when when do I see deep fusion? And Apple clearly doesn't want you to care because there's no deep fusion button. no night mode button but at the same time they love the technology so much they talk about it so people think that they're these distinct modes yeah yeah um i still haven't done i'm kind of waiting you know i have i i I went ahead and put ios 13.2 developer betas on my my daily carry iphone just because because i thought what what do i have to lose (laughs) based on and and i would i would say the 13.1.2 is okay it's not a horror show of bugs. Point but, three is slightly better. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I, I think I'd already switched to the developer base yeah. before that. So, but I just figured, why not? I might as well just use this and get Deep Fusion as quickly yeah. as as possible. Um, 
But people are sweating almost. Like, they're just showing these sweater pictures and saying, can you see the difference? And I don't think you're meant to. I don't think it's supposed no. to work that way. Yeah, I don't think so either. Um, um, uh, I forget where I was going with that. But basically, I feel like Apple did the right thing by going ultra-wide on the 11. Yeah. I think it's more fun. I think it's more... It, 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 it's impossible to duplicate... Uh, in software. And I do, I agree with you. I still kind of feel though, that the iPhone, regular iPhone 11 non pro should have a two X button. Yeah. And, and they could even style it differently. Like make it like a lighter color or light, slightly less vibrant. I don't know. There's some kind of, some kind of indication to show that it would, that it would be software only. Maybe, I don't know, or maybe not. Well, maybe they did just software only portrait mode and they didn't really, they didn't know right. it any different way. It was just right. portrait mode. But just, just as a convenient way to jump to an exact two X yeah. digital zoom, which is an interesting perspective. And, you know, it, it, to me, yes, you can, you can get there through the dial and the dial clicks a little bit at the two X marker, but it just as a nice way to jump there and to get the exact, if that's what you want for a couple of shots to know that you're exactly at, 2.0x and not 2.1 or 1.9 yeah. that would satisfy me the 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 vaguely ocd parts of my brain <laughs> that if i'm going to take a series of shots from this field of view i want it to be exactly 2.0 i don't and want it's just it to faster be than dialing it dialing it is a little bit fidgety pressing yeah. that button is just immediate yeah it's very immediate very exact very satisfying uh so i but i so it's sort of hard to defend not including it other than as what I call marketing spite that they just yeah. wanted to reserve that as a way to emphasize that the iPhone 11 pro has a two X, an entire two X camera system. Yeah. It's three modes instead of two. Yeah. Uh, here, before we take another break, I've got follow up. I would need to mention from my last episode, I was talking about Ben, Ben Thompson and I were talking about our, sort of conservative upgrade cycle to new versions of Mac OS and that neither of us were upgrading primary machines to Catalina yet. Uh, Ben's Ben waits like a year. He's very, he's very pessimistic on new Mac OS software quality. I'm going to upgrade sooner rather than later. Um, I usually wait a year, but I did it this year just because I, I I could not finish the review without using it on my primary machine. There was just too much new stuff. I mentioned looking forward to Sidecar, but I also mentioned looking forward to Sidecar after extolling my my deep and abiding love for the 2014 MacBook Pro that is my daily driver. Yeah. Uh, completely forgetting the fact that Sidecar requ- requires like a 2016 MacBook or later yeah. uh, because it needs like the T2 chip. And I knew that. But I completely forgot it while I was talking about it. And it doesn't really reduce my interest in upgrading this machine to Catalina, but a little bit it does because I'm going to have to use a different machine just to try Sidecar. Um, But I'm curious what you think of Sidecar. Sidecar, of course, is the feature that allows you to uh, use your iPad as an external display, including using the pencil as input to a Mac app uh, that that can take stylus-type input. And you, as as somebody who illustrates and is a big pencil user, I'm curious, you know, have you given Sidecar a a good ride yet? Yeah, I mean, I I used it a lot through the beta, but it was kind of hard to use because none of the apps, none of the third-party apps could be um, updated to support it yet. 
Uh, I like some of the features. Some of the stuff they say, like, you know, you can just use it to sign documents. I do that stuff directly on the iPad or to sketch in notes. I just do that directly on the iPad. I don't need it. Maybe if I'm using the Mac already, it's slightly more convenient, but I, I would just pick up the iPad and use those directly. I love it as a second screen, though, especially if I'm editing in Final Cut and I have like a meeting on Google Meet or I just want to have Slack or iMessage up. I have that all the time now. I just put the iPad up and it's great because I can leave the full screen on Final Cut and I can do everything else on the iPad. And slowly but surely, Photoshop was was tough, but slowly but surely apps are updating now. And I love that I can just pick it up, draw with the pencil, put it back down, go back to editing with the mouse. Um, I, I think over the next month or two, as the more and more apps update, I'm just going to do that all the time. Uh, and there's a, a happy little story here where... Uh... Luna Display, which is a, yeah. a great little company that came out with these dongles uh, that that go into the USB-C port of your newer Mac or the Thunderbolt port on a slightly older Mac and trick the Mac into thinking it's an entire display that's been plugged in where what it really does is just transmit the image to the Luna Display app on your iPad so that you can use your iPad as a second display. Uh, and yeah, sidecar, uh, to use our, our, our little rackets term for it, Sherlock, mm-hmm. that feature pretty hard, yeah. uh, because it's built into the system. Uh, it's going to do things that an app using an app and a dongle just aren't as convenient for. Um, but the good news is the Luna display team, rather than just, uh, go and drink and be sad about getting Sherlock to put their heads down and did a lot of work and, already have announced uh that they've got a mac to mac mode um for luna display which will let you use like for example a 5k imac as an external display wirelessly uh which is really really cool uh a really interesting use case um for like, especially to me, the one the device that really stands out is yeah. That's this is a great way to keep that machine in your active use is the like the five six year old iMac five Ks, which still have by today's standards outstanding displays. It's still hard. It is really hard to find a a five K external display, <laughs> and with, like the price of like the selling price of like a five K iMac even a new one is actually yeah. in the ballpark of what you might expect for you know you think like well what a waste to have an entire uh iMac computer go to waste and just use it as a display but when you look at the prices it's actually not bad no it, it's great and apple doesn't sell a standalone right and it gets it, like that as we head towards the the on the launch of the mac pro and you know it's like, are we really going to have a scenario where the only the only first party Apple display is a six thousand dollar X, you know, Pro Display XDR? Six K for six K. Uh, what the hell am I going to do? I don't, you know, people who don't really want to buy the LG displays, you know, it seems ridiculous to buy this expensive Mac Pro and then use a, a iMac as your display, but it might be a good secondary display. I don't know. It's. I just yeah. see this as being very useful to a lot of people. And I'm glad, glad to see Lunix still uh, doing awesome work. Yeah, absolutely. Probably get Sherlocked in 1016 next year. <laughs> <laughs> then they'll just Moriarty him right back again. Yeah, exactly. Just, but I mean, it's just the perfect attitude where you're a hardware software developer. It's like you kind of have to. You ought to be thinking with whether it's an app or a product. 
might Apple steal this idea? I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's a hard word, steal. But you know what I mean. And at least if you're on the team, it can feel like they stole your idea. If the answer is yes, then you should have a plan B for when that will happen. Like if it seems yeah. like it would be a good idea built into the system, it there's a very high chance it will be built into the system. And it's probably, you know, the truth is it's probably a higher chance than if you didn't build your product because the existence proof of, hey, here's a cool product that does this thing makes it a very compelling argument you know, inside Apple to, yeah, we should do this, right? Like, that sounds like a good idea is one thing. Here, look at this. Look at what these guys did uh, is a way more compelling way to say, yeah, we should build that into the system. Yeah, but they're also almost always only going to do the baseline feature and leave a right. lot of gaps. So you can you can really thrive in, in making the better version. Right, if there's room in whatever your idea is to go deeper and, and, and stuff like that, usually there's there's room to do that. You know, for example, the, I, the my favorite example this year is the Beefed Up Reminders app, uh, yeah. which is, it. I think, I, I don't see how you could argue that it's not an improvement over the almost rudimentary uh, reminders app we've had until now, but is I don't think is going to put any kind of dent in the sales of apps like Things and OmniFocus, uh, you know, whatever your favorite to-do list app is, because there's just yeah. people have so many diverse needs for the way they want to do a, a to-do system uh, that nothing that Apple builds into the system that's meant for ninety percent of people to use is ever going to touch most of those things. The same thing with, uh, you know, Calendar and Fantastical and Mail and yep. Spark. And some yep. people just always use the Google version of right. the app, regardless right. of whether they're using Apple hardware. Right. Or the Fantastical group has the Card Hop, which is a contacts yeah. app. Yeah, uh, way better. Yeah, way better. But also, I wouldn't suggest it as, as something Apple should adopt as the the, the yeah. system app. You know, Fantastical is probably a little closer uh, to being, you know, it's so, you know... Uh, but I can see why Apple doesn't didn't go that route on some of the UI decisions. But it definitely has, has some power user type features that really make it worthwhile. Yeah, I guess I could take a break. Talk about another sponsor. How about this? Here's another one of my favorite sponsors. If you're hearing me right now, it's because I'm using their product, Eero, E E R O. Uh, Eero is a way to set up Wi-Fi in your home and have multiple base stations spread around your house. Maybe you need two, maybe you need three, maybe you have a big house, you need four. I don't know. Uh, but if you're trying to saturate your whole home with one signal from one device plugged into your cable modem or your Fios box and go from your basement to your garage, to your bedroom on the top floor of your house, uh, there's a good chance you can't do it. If you've got spots in your house that have bad Wi-Fi, you should get a system like Eero. Eero makes it so easy to set up. You just start with a, a starter package. You go to their website. They have all sorts of tools where you can describe your home, your apartment, your house, whatever you're trying to set up. Uh, and they'll help you get just the right amount of hardware to do it. Uh, and you set it up in just minutes. It plugs right into your modem, your cable, your router. And you manage it all from a dead simple app. It's a native app right there on your iPhone. And it lets you pause the Wi-Fi for dinner, stuff like that. It lets you see all the devices on your network. It is the easiest, easiest way I've ever seen to set up a secondary guest network so that you can have uh, people come over and you, they say, hey, can I get on your Wi-Fi? And you don't want them on your Wi-Fi. At least if you're like me, you don't want them on your real Wi-Fi where they could like see all your devices and stuff. Just give them the guest network password. 
uh, and they get all the same speed and performance and you're not putting a, putting their devices on your network. Love it. Super easy. Uh, it just, I just can't emphasize how easy it is to set this up and, uh, and it just, you just stop worrying about Wi-Fi signal throughout your house. Uh, so they have an all new one, an all new Eero. That's new hardware starts at just 99 bucks. Uh, and it blankets your whole home with fast, reliable Wi-Fi. Uh, you can get your Wi-Fi fixed as soon as tomorrow. Go to eero.com slash the talk show and enter that code, the talk show at checkout, and you'll get free overnight shipping with your order. That's amazing. So 24 hours from the time you're listening to me tell you this, you can already be setting up your Eero right there in your home. That's Eero.com slash the talk show with code the talk show at checkout to get your Eero delivered with free overnight shipping. You must use this URL to receive the offer. Eero.com slash the talk show with checkout code the talk show. I guess we got to talk. I can't just ignore it. I got to talk about the Apple Hong Kong China stuff, but I feel like yeah. I've written so much about it that I don't need to spend a whole segment of the show on it. Um, and it seems to have calmed down a little bit. Um, basically Apple got caught in sort of a perfect storm of, of China related stuff. Like it, it really is unrelated and just purely coincidental that the NBA situation where the GM of the Houston Rockets just tweeted us, retweeted a simple pro Hong Kong tweet and <laughs> really set off a, uh, a firestorm of controversy that made even the Apple one seem small. Uh, and how often do you hear that? Like where Apple gets caught yeah. up in a controversy <laughs> and somebody else is in the same controversy and it's getting a way more attention. Yeah. Um, but the Apple-related aspects, uh, there's the HK Map Live app, and then there's this this sub secondary story of Apple requesting slash demanding that the people creating the shows for Apple TV Plus keep them China friendly, meaning yeah. don't 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 put stuff in your shows that would anger the Chinese or create a controversy um with the hk map live i've written enough a lot about it the one thing i can say that i'm not quite sure i made clear in my writing is that i've from multiple people inside apple including a couple of people who are really really um interested at a personal level that they, they you know whether it's their family or or significant others but they, they have a personal investment in the whole situation in hong kong in particular um uh, and, and asked around within the company. Like I verified this from a couple people that, that the initial rejection of that app was not a strat strategic dictum from the top of the company. That was mm -hmm. just a single app reviewer who looked at the app and thought, well, this Hong Kong stuff is controversial. This seems like it's meant to circumvent the law. I'm going to deny it. Um, and I think everything that happened after that came from that one yeah. Ultimately erroneous decision. So the, the three steps of the controversy is a, the developer s submits this app to Apple and it's a map app that shows user submitted uh, information about police activity and protest activity around Hong Kong. Uh, and you, the user, can use it however you see fit, whether it's because you want to join in a protest or whether because you want to avoid the protests. 
Um, and it has information about like where tear gas is being used, which for obvious reasons is something that if you're, you know, uh, you might want to avoid if the, if the app had just been accepted, which I, internally Apple determined it should have been that this is not something it's not illegal. The app itself, the app is not illegal in Hong Kong. Uh, it's just information should have been accepted. I don't think it would have been that big of a news. I, I, I don't think any kind of controversy would have come of it. Nobody would have noticed. No, I, it's, you know, I think word, you know, I think the app is somewhat popular in Hong Kong for obvious reasons. I think there's, you know, it's, it's small, densely populated, populated city. It's not like anybody in Hong Kong is unaware <laughs> of the months long protests. It's, well, it's it, also a wrapper around the webpage, which is right. accessible still to everybody. Right. right. Which, you know, we, we can mention, I, I just don't think it would have been news. I, I think Apple accepts this app that also is on the web and also is on Android is not a news story. The news story yeah. was the, and again, it, people aren't wrong for assuming it, right. That, that this was, this was a corporate executive level decision to placate, the mainland Chinese government by disallowing this app, which is seemingly an app meant for people protesting for de democratic rights in Hong Kong. So then when the news came out that the app was uh, rejected, more people than not, or at least the sort of people who were tweeting about it or writing about it, were operating under the assumption that that was policy from Apple, which I didn't think it was, but I didn't know. Um, Two days later, Apple Apple agreed, you know, changed its mind. The appeal process and the developer of the app themselves. I don't want to say himself or herself. I don't. I'm not. It's not even clear whether it's one person or multiple people. But for obvious reasons of wanting to keep their identity hidden from the Chinese government, they're they're anonymous. So the developer, I'll just say plural, developers of the app. Uh, even tweeted when they said, hey, this, you know, we've submitted an appeal. We think this might just be a bureaucratic mistake. You know, they weren't jumping to the conclusion that yeah. Apple was trying to suppress the app. Two days later, Apple said, okay, the app is fine. There's no problem with it. It doesn't break the law. Now it's in the App Store, and then it was in the App Store. And then another two days later, <laughs> they pulled it from the App Store. And in the, in, in the, in the interim, there was a lot of publicity about it, including... Uh, multiple op-eds in state-run newspapers in mainland China, which the assumption is always have the backing of the government. You know, the, the state-run newspapers don't just run random op-eds. <laughs> uh, absolutely dragging Apple over the coals for this, you know, saying that they're helping, you know, rioters. You know, they're, in the mainland China, these people aren't protesters for democracy. They're rioters who are making trouble. Um a very, very strongly worded uh, de denouncements of Apple's decision yeah. to to publish this, which wouldn't have happened in the first place if they had simply accepted the app on first pass. Yeah. Uh, boy, this put Apple in a bad position. And I really, I wish they had just weathered the storm and left the app in the store and just had nothing to say about it. Um. But instead, they pulled it again two days later. And that's where it really gets interesting. I, I don't know what you think about it. The assumption on the outside is clearly that Apple's simply placating the mainland Chinese government. And that's, again, I say that's perfectly reasonable. There's no reason to think otherwise. But from what I've heard internally from multiple people is that um, higher level and lower level, uh, 
is basically that what what Tim Cook's company-wide memo said which I, I even said really just didn't stand up to scrutiny. I mean, yeah. I think you kind of agreed with that too. Yeah, absolutely. It stands up a little better if you assume, and this is what I believe to be the case, that Apple sort of got thrown under the bus by the Hong Kong government, not the mainland China. It wasn't, you know, the mainland China communicates very, I don't think Apple heard from them. I really don't. I've And I've heard from no one who said they did. I don't think mainland China sends messages like that. They communicate uh, indirectly. Through disappointed editorials, exactly. usually anonymous in yeah. state newspapers. Exactly. Where So Apple's internal apparatus isn't really hooked up. They're, they're hooked up uh, on the Hong Kong in particular to protect Hong Kong from mainland China. And their assumption is that if there's pressure, overt or otherwise, uh, with tensions between mainland China's laws and rules and desires and and hypersensitivity to perceptive issues, you know, like there's there's this whole thing in recent years where where China effectively demanded that a bunch of air, uh, airlines around the world that if you fly into like Taiwan and Hong Kong that that these places be labeled as part of China and not as independent uh, locations. Very, very sensitive to, to stuff like this. Um, yeah. uh, Apple set up internally to protect Hong Kong from China. And so they, they are, their internal systems were set up to, Hey, if Hong Kong tells us blank, we should take their word for it and do it. And Hong Kong, Authorities, not mainland Chinese authorities, Hong Kong authorities told Apple, hey, this app is no good. This this isn't helping, you know, the right people. This is causing, you know, looters and rioters are using it to circumvent police. Uh, you know, the stuff that Tim Cook says they were told, I actually think they were told by the Hong Kong authorities. That's part of the conflict in this whole, I, I, you know, we could obviously do a, a whole podcast about it and we're not experts. I'm certainly not an expert on yeah. the politics of the Hong Kong thing. But part of it is that what people are protesting for is they'd like to elect their own leaders, whereas the way the stuff is set up with the two systems, one country promise ever since uh, the United Kingdom handed over uh, control of Hong Kong to China in 1997, you know, that the, the Hong Kong authorities aren't representatives of mainland China, but they're appointed by mainland China. And part yeah. of this whole thing with these protests is that the protesters are arguing, you know, that, that, you know, they'd like, they'd like to replace them with people of their own choosing, you know? And I, I think like the, the, the current leader of Hong Kong is something like 15 or 19% approval rating or something like that. Something that totally untenable if, if, if the position were duly elected in a real democracy, yeah. um, Apple just isn't set up to deal with that or wasn't set up to deal with that, that they, you know, Hong Kong said X, Y, and Z and Apple said, okay, X, Y, and Z, we should, you know, pull this app from the store. Knowing, I mean, I'm not saying that the people at Apple who made that decision uh, weren't fully aware that, hey, this looks terrible for us because it looks like we're flip-flopping all over the place. Reject, accept, reject all within five days. And they knew that that looks bad. And they knew that, that there were all these op-eds in China decrying them for this. And so they knew how weak it makes them look, but they thought it was the right thing to do because Hong Kong was asking for it. 
Yeah, I, I I think they were. It was a t- like to your original point. The minute that app was first rejected, um, by putting it back on the store, there was no easy out for them on this whole thing. It was either they have to keep it in the store and risk what is happening in Hong Kong and China, or take it down and risk being seen as an instrument of mainland China. The whole the whole issue with Apple and China is so fascinating because they are so deeply intertwined with China. Uh, you know, one of my favorite things about reviews is when people say, oh, a phone shouldn't cost this much, as if they have any idea what a phone, what goes into making a phone. Uh, and the reason that phones don't cost way more, in part, is the way that they're manufactured. And Apple has been leveraging that in China for years. It, there's no easy exit for them there. And at the same time, Tim Cook has this consistent policy, and you can see this everywhere from how he deals with um, situations with the mining of materials to civil liberties in the U.S. to engaging the Trump administration to engaging China is that he believes if he's not part of the conversation, he has no ability to affect change. Uh, but that's always dangerous because, one, you're going to get those editorials that say that you're appeasing people because engagement and appeasement is a very, very small buffer between them. And one can quickly be perceived as, if not become, the other. But at the same time, you give them a conduit back into you. And it's often easier. I think you said this really well in one of your posts a while ago, is the only thing you can't tolerate is intolerance. But by reaching out and making those engagements, you give them a bridge back to you and they start to, whether they actually influence your policy or not, it's perceived again that they're influencing your policy. So Apple has all of these things happening in China, the removal of the Quartz app, Tim Cook being elected chairman of the business school, uh, which you know could have been anybody. It used to be there's a whole bunch of U.S. CEOs on that board, and they all yeah. take turns. And But right now, at the same time, it just happens to be yeah. his turn. And could he have gone, no, 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 give it to Zuckerberg yeah. this time. I'll take it next time. But all these things happen at once, and it creates really bad optics for them. Uh, and the concern is always that China, for example, wants iCloud storage um, in China. And people will find that dangerous. But it, by the same token, there are a lot of people outside the U.S. who want nothing to do with having data stored in the U.S. right now. And France wants their, you know, their citizens, their data. And that's going to be an increasing movement around the world. But the fear is that China will ask for encryption keys one day, the same way the FBI or ask for a backdoor, the same way the U.S. government yeah. did. And the U.S. government, you can see it. It's apparent. There's a legal battle. There's litigation. Uh, all this stuff happens in the open, where with China, it's not that form of government. And I think that's sort of the fear that underlies all this, is that when it happens in China, it's going to be much harder for Apple to affect, to to sort of stand their ground, especially given uh, all the small negotiations that are happening now. Uh, I forget what the context was this week, but I, th- I thought I had a good observation on... Uh Something with Apple and China where Apple didn't fully... Oh, I know what it was. It's the safe browsing story. Yeah. So one of the other little stories this week was that uh, Safari has long had this safe browsing feature where I I didn't even notice when it expanded to include Tencent, which is the state-owned Japanese conglomerate. Um, You know, but Google uh, famously is shut out of China at the moment. Uh, so you, you know, if you're in China and you're on behind the China, the great firewall, you, you can't use Google search. You can't use Google anything for the most part. Um, and so the safe browsing feature that Safari has had for a while, which uses a blacklist of either known or for all effects and purposes, known malware or otherwise, you know, stuff that you would want blocked. 
Safari uses Google's server for this, can't use it in China, so they use Tencent. But the way Google or the way Apple wrote the uh, description, like if you're like, hmm, let me find out about this feature. Uh, (laughs) It just said like Apple, it just said like Safari may send your IP address uh, is like the privacy policy for the features. Like Safari may send your your IP address to uh, Google or Tencent. (laughs) Yeah, it was completely tone deaf. Uh, And people rightly... Uh, jump to the the plain reading of it, which is that you don't know if when they're using one or the other, and so they might be, you know, you might be in the United States, you might be in the middle of Tennessee or Texas, and they're sending your IP address to its server in China and a state-owned media conglomerate with all your. It, the The feature is as you would expect from Apple. It is designed with privacy in mind, and it uses hashed URLs and prefixes of the URLs instead of the whole thing to keep, you know, Google or Tencent from seeing the specific URLs you're visiting. There's no way to avoid – well, I guess I shouldn't say there's no way. I guess they could proxy the calls through yeah. an Apple server, which is an interesting question as to why they're not. Why you know The IP address is getting sent to these providers because Safari is calling them directly. And you, know, you can I, – I guess there's a performance argument there that proxying is – by necessity going to have an extra hop where your device is talking to Apple and Apple's talking to Google and then Google talks back to Apple and then and Apple the potential talks. source of failure, which is what happens with Siri when it's like, wait mm. a second, yeah. hold on. Uh, so, you know, there's obviously reasons for performance and simplicity to let your device talk directly to Google. Uh, and then there's reasons of privacy where you'd want it proxied. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's a separate thing. To me, the problem was, was the the way this uh, feature was described by Apple. And, Absolutely. And what I wrote is, trust us is not good enough. Like, effectively, these things are sort of written with a trust us attitude that, look, you can trust us, we're Apple. And so my assumption when this story broke last weekend was, well, I would guess that they're only using Tencent for users in mainland China, and they're using Google yeah. everywhere else in the world. And in fact, that is how yes. the feature works. But they didn't say that. And yeah. so the people who jump to the wrong conclusion, I don't think they're crazy. And I happen to know it ties into Hong Kong specifically because this story went nuts in the Hong Kong, um, the the multi-user chat groups that they use. What do they use? Yeah. Uh, what's the app? Uh, I forget. I'm not sure. It's Weibo in China. I'm not sure what it is. Nah, in Hong Kong. It's not Signal. It's the Line? other one. No, the one that starts with a T. Oh. Telegram. Telegram. Yeah. So Telegram uh, supports big multi-user chats and so there's a whole bunch of groups in, in 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 Hong Kong who are using Telegram and and it went rampant went old, you know super you know uh, uh you know like kindling going up in a in a fire viral of hey turn off safe browsing because they're going to send your IP address to Tencent and you know protesters in Hong Kong obviously don't want anything sent i mean your IP address isn't mm-hmm. that you know, it doesn't reveal that much about you. But, you know, if I were a protester in Hong Kong, I'd want to be sure that my even my IP address wasn't being sent to China. I don't want it sent to Google. So I totally get that. And so the downside to this is that anybody who got caught up in this, you know, it could really it wasn't getting sent to Tencent. It was getting sent to Google. Uh, but you could wind up disabling a useful feature. You know, that yeah. and now all of a sudden you're browsing, you, you think you've made your browsing safer because you've protected yourself from having your IP address sent to Tencent, but it wasn't being sent there in the first place. And now you're 
liable, you know, you're, you're susceptible to all the sites that safe browsing would have blocked you from, which might be sites that the that the yes. the Chinese government is using to try to hack Hong Kong protesters. Yeah. Uh, and so anyway, trust us isn't good enough. And, and my take, my, my quip was, if Apple is too embarrassed to explain in detail exactly what they're doing to comply with Chinese law, then they shouldn't be doing it. And I really feel like they, I wish that they had a white paper describing in more detail how the setup is that iCloud users server data is stored in mainland China on third-party company hardware. I wish that they would describe that in as much detail as they as they could. Instead, My understanding is that it's there, but Apple retains the, the encryption keys. But I, it, it shouldn't be our understanding. There should be a white yeah. paper that explains it, yeah, in my absolutely. opinion. Uh, yeah. you know, and so that you can make your own informed decision about how likely it is that the Chinese police could storm in and demand stuff, how, what, 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 what the dangers are just that the Chinese government might have moles working for the company that hosts these servers, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't know anything. It's, it's way more of a black box than it should be in my opinion. And I don't mean to be flippant about it at all, but you know, that, that line from equilibrium where he said the easiest way to get a weapon from a grammaton cleric is to ask him for it. They just made TikToks. So we just all give them our IP address and everything anyway. <laughs> Uh, it's not like they need to trick us into it anymore. They just made a catchy social media company. Yeah, yeah. Ben and Ben Thompson has, has some good takes on this. Where you know, and, and his observation, which is to me was very keen, and I'm like, yeah, why isn't everybody saying this? Is that with the NBA thing? So the, this NBA executive Dan Mori, I think his name is, who tweeted this one pro Hong Kong tweet, which was really just like stand up for Hong Kong. It wasn't like you know Hong Kong should set the city on fire. It was you know. We support Hong Kong. Yeah, um, it was tweeted. It's on it, which is a social network that is yeah. completely blocked within China, and yet somehow the Chinese state media would have us believe that millions of Chinese <laughs> NBA fans saw this tweet and were deeply offended by it. Like you know, I, I thought it was a pretty keen observation of uh, this is manufactured because <laughs> how could a, how could one message on a social network banned within China have caused millions of people to be angry in China. They can't read it. But meanwhile, See, that's the thing. meanwhile we on the West, with our open values, uh, totally allow... So we allow them to block our social networks. Yeah. Uh, I mean, here I am standing up for Facebook, you know. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> on principle, it doesn't seem right that, that we allow them to say, yeah, no Instagram in China, but we'll take TikTok and let everybody install it on their phones. And if it's fun enough, people will have it. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, uh, uh, it, it, well, the thing that scares me is that this is like, there's that old saying from the West Wing where there's no amount of, there's no amount of manpower or money that equals a criminal being stupid. And a lot of the stuff that we see all the time is buffoonery. It's just so dumb, it's easy to catch. And especially with this stuff, it creates such a Streisand effect that it ends up shining a huge light on on things that are happening. But it's the stuff that we don't hear about that worries me. It's the requests that get made that aren't, you know, oh, as we saw Twitter for an NBA, that's ludicrous. It's just right. absolutely ludicrous. But it, it's the stuff that's not uh, so above board or, or so public that I worry more about. Yeah, totally. Uh, so anyway, Apple, they're in a tough spot in China. Yeah. I think that it could get, I think that the, my takeaway from this, this whole saga though, is that it's not that Apple, uh, just got through a terrible ex uh, exposure 
to to their foothold in China. It's that it just sort of hinted at how bad it could be. Yes. Right. Like what happens? I, I mean, if there is a Tiananmen Square like crackdown on the Hong Kong protesters, you know, what happens if 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 the Chinese government sends you know the their military into Hong Kong to put it put an end to this? You know, it's yeah. Uh, they you know. There, it's it's in my opinion right up there with natural disasters, you know, as as which would affect every company though, right? Like Apple is sort of uniquely exposed in China as as a Western company because no other Western company is so reliant on them for manufacturing, and you know the this the second factor of Apple's sales within China, it's like this more or less tied, you know, it goes back and forth, it ebbs and flows more. But you know, U.S. is the is the biggest market. U.S. you know, or call it North America if you want to include you know our Canadian friends like you. Uh, you know, the North America is the biggest market. China and Europe, Greater Western Europe, are more or less tied as their second biggest markets. Uh, it's a big market for Apple. It's certainly one of growth. It's certainly part of their growth story, and everybody knows growth is important for the message of Apple to Wall Street. It would obviously be a shit show if Apple had to. Pr- pull out or if their sales within mainland China were decimated through bad publicity or, or tariffs or any of the various things that could go bad. But Apple could exist as we know it with their sales in to consumers in mainland China being cut off. It would be a significant hit. It would be reflected in the stock price, but Apple as we know it would, would still be there. You know, it would be like I don't know, I think ballparking it, you know, I don't know, like twenty percent, twenty five percent, something like that. Um, yeah, and it's hard where, too because where, where even if it's not ma- a disaster, hmm. sorry, keep going. No, keep going. No, I was going to say even if it's not something like an incident in Hong Kong, even if it's something like tariffs, and people will say, well, Apple represents way too much of the gross domestic product of Southern China for any of that to like the Chinese government to want to affect that in any way. But they have a remarkable ability for absorbing pain. Uh, I, I think we don't understand to the extent at which they would allow something to happen that was moderately that was even severely painful for them if it was worse for whomever they were contending with yeah. and just the, if the tariffs got too bad and it destroyed apple's ability to compete manufacturing in china even if it cost every job in shenzhen province i don't think they would have it i don't think at the end of the day they would have that big a problem with it yeah uh you know the manufacturing thing is just the angle that cannot be it just cannot be understated you know and there was a story that, you know the wall street journal just had a story over the weekend Did you see this about how you know there's iphone 10rs i think being made in yeah. india now uh which is a weird thing to see it's you know it's just a weird thing to see that small print that says uh you know designed by apple in california assembled in india um but india the indian national government is making a huge press uh, to appeal to s- smartphone manufacturers in particular to to build up India as a major production center uh, yeah. for smartphone hardware, and you know Apple's part of it, but it's even if they put the pedal to the metal and and accelerated their trying to to become independent of China if they wanted to for manufacturing and assembly. Even the fastest they could do it, the most efficient way, if they didn't make any mistakes, made all the right moves, spent as much money as they needed to, it's still a years-long process, possibly many years long. They made a deliberate choice not to own the core technologies when it comes to manufacturing, and that gives them exposure. Right. 
they're absolutely exposed. And it, in particular, the iPhone, you know, it's everybody knows it's a huge, you know, it's the most important best-selling yeah. biggest revenue and profit maker uh, will be for years to come. Uh, it's utterly dependent on China at the moment. All right, let me take one final break here and thank our third and final sponsor of this episode of the talk show, Squarespace. You guys know Squarespace. Come on. I talk about them all the time, sponsoring the show forever. Place you go to do it all for a website, for your company, for your personal use, for a company your friends have, a business, a restaurant personal portfolio, you name it, you can build it with Squarespace. And they do everything from domain name registration to picking from their award-winning templates that scale to any size device from a big 27-inch Retina iMac to an iPhone SE in your pocket. Uh, You could do it all right there. Award-winning support. And they have everything from analytics, so you can see who's coming to your site from where, to the design tools that you don't have to know any kind of code to do. If you don't even know what the difference is between HTML and CSS, that's all right. You'll be fine. It's all drag and drop. If you do know HTML and CSS and JavaScript and you want to get in there and be able to customize at that level, you can do that too. It truly is the sort of system that scales from a true novice somebody who just wants to drag stuff around, click a button, have it be done to the sort of person who who has strong opinions on a text editor for editing JavaScript. Squarespace can handle it. Uh, so here's what you need to remember. Next time you need a website, a new website, you want to redo an old website, or somebody comes to you for help with a website, and you send them to Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com and remember the offer code talk show, no the, just talk show at checkout, and you'll get 10% off. My thanks to Squarespace for their continuing support of this podcast. Uh, all right. How about this? Let's go forward thinking. Do we do or Are you done? I think we're done on China. What do you think? Yes. I right. agree. Uh, Apple event. As we record, this could, this is the sort of segment of a podcast that could be, <laughs> could be blown apart by between recording and publishing. But as we speak on Monday, October 21st, there are no signs, no invitations, no rumors that I've seen that there's going to be an Apple event this fall. Another yeah, Apple no, event. No event this month, at least. Uh, it's possible. I look back at the last few years. So last year, they sent out invitations on the 18th of October for the October 30 event that was in Brooklyn. Two years before that, in 2016, they sent out invitations on October 19th for, I think it was the last ever event at Town Hall and Cupertino, but that was only eight days ahead. It was actually on the 27th and it was weird. It was a Thursday, which is, I don't remember that, but, uh, it was right. So I'm going to use the dreaded, my understanding language again, but my understanding is they're way too busy (laughs) learning, launching, launching TV plus to have the resources to do an event in October. That, that sounds right to me. Uh, October, uh, they're all over the place at the premieres, right? Right. Uh, the PR is spread thin. Um, yeah. And that's launching November 1st, right? Yeah. Uh, that makes sense. To my knowledge, Apple has never held a fall event in November. And the closer you get to Thanksgiving, the more impossible it would be. Uh, also, the further along you get, the less anything that you want to announce would have time to factor into holiday gift purchases. Uh, what do we think is coming? 
the three products. So my guess is like my guess is that it won't be consumer products. It'll be professional products. And it'll be similar. Like, I know they didn't show anything off at WWDC the way they did with the iMac Pro. Hmm. But my my guess is still that it'll be something like that, you know, where they have a very specific, not a giant media event, but they have a bunch of stuff put together to show us how the products are used in context. Yeah. Well, the big... And we get pro- our introduction that way. The one product we've already been told by Apple is to expect this calendar year is the Mac Pro, right? Yeah. When they, And to me, what's instructive is to go back to 2017 when they were on a similar schedule with the iMac Pro where they showed it at WWDC in June, said you can expect it later this year (laughs) and then they didn't have an event for the the launch of the iMac Pro what they did was hold small private media briefings in New York and I believe in Cupertino as well so that West Coast uh, media didn't have to travel to New York and vice versa from from the East Coast. And there was no keynote. There was nothing that was live broadcast. It was just small briefings of groups. I I think I was in like a group of like six or something like that. And they had multiple demos set up in in their little townhouse in, well, little, (laughs) their big townhouse in New York where we would just move from station to station and they'd show us, you know, here's, here's what the iMac Pro means for developers. Here's what it means for 3D people who do 3D modeling and rendering. And here's what it means in, you know, these other demos. Uh, there you go. I could see them doing that exact sort of thing again with the Mac Pro. I could even yeah. see them doing it again if there is, as rumored, a 16-inch MacBook Pro coming yes. before the end of the year. Um, because what do you got? What would you even if it wasn't a time compression? Like, oh, we're so busy with TV Plus that we don't even have time to do this event. What are you going to do with a 16-inch MacBook Pro? You've already shown Catalina. What's the demo? You know, what is the story to be held on stage? You know, they don't hold stage events just because there's a new product. They have to have something to yes. talk about. And they're not going to talk about how bad the keyboard was for right an hour on stage. <laughs> right. They're totally not going to. They're gonna... not going to do it. Um. Yeah, they're you know they might talk about how great the new keyboard is, but they're not going to talk about how bad the old keyboard was. Uh, yeah. So the only other product that's rumored that might you know come out before the end of the year, at least that I'm aware of, is, is the AirPods with noise cancellation. Yeah. And again, AirPods Pro because everything's Pro. Now. I, they could just hold a briefing for that and yeah. tell tell the press how great they sound. I, I don't see them holding an event for that. Yeah. No. Likewise. So I guess the one last thing I wanted to talk about this week is. Uh, a little bit on Catalina, which I've been playing with a little, yeah. and uh, Catalyst in particular, which you sort of need Catalina to do. And I just know, I just know, for the whole next year, I'm going to say Catalyst when I mean Catalina and Catalina. I've been doing I mean that Catalyst. too. <laughs> it's just, I, I make errors like that. It's, yeah. you know, talking about like hashing algorithms. It's just, I, I file stuff in my head alphabetic alphabetically and C-A-T-A-L just doesn't have yes. many items in it. And to have two <laughs> of them be related to the same version of Mac OS is, is really going to screw me up. So I apologize to everybody out there listening for all of the Catalyst Catalina conflations I'm about to make. The draft for my review, I called it Mac OS Catalyst. <laughs> I had to fix it before it went live. <laughs> in the in the headline <laughs> yeah <laughs> i could totally i'm glad you caught it i i would you know they had press briefings for catalina for the whole os uh the week before it it shipped uh 
and you know, Apple PR reached out to me to see if I'd be interested in going up to New York to, to, to have the briefing. And I was, and I thought, boy, that's weird though. Like I was kind of more intrigued than I would have been. Cause in my head, I thought that they said it was a briefing entirely about catalyst. And I thought, Ooh, this might be, this might be really interesting. Are they, they're preemptively having an entire briefing just about this catalyst thing. And then yeah. I realized it wasn't, it was Catalina. Yeah. <laughs> it was the whole, <laughs> just a, you know, just a recap of the whole song and dance of all the, it wasn't, it was, I'm glad I went. It was useful. It was interesting. Um, but it wasn't anywhere near as juicy as I thought it would have been if it would yeah. have been Catalyst specific. Um, so anyway, are you using Catalyst or not Catalyst? Catalina on your primary yeah, I, machine? I did. It. I, I I don't usually do it because I have to edit video on it and I have to edit podcasts on it, and I'm very nervous about it. But yeah. again, I just I was using it on an alternate machine, and it just wasn't enough to actually review it. I felt yeah. like I had to use it, so I put it on my main machine, and it had some ups and downs, but it's pretty solid now. So one of the big changes is that 32-bit apps are now gone. And, you know, yes. Apple managed this transition about as well as they could. They gave plenty of heads up years ago at starting at WWDCs that, you know, soon enough, you know, that at that, 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 whatever point they made the announcement, 32-bit uh, frameworks. Snow Leopard. It was up on, remember Bertrand put up the huge 32-bit banner at Snow Leopard. Was that really when they first started? I think I, they mentioned it a little bit with Leopard, but it yeah. was like a it was a headline feature in Snow Leopard. Was that just though going to sixty four bit? That's yeah, yeah, for, for apps, sixty four bit apps. As yeah. soon as they went to sixty four bit apps, everybody should have known that eventually they're going to do away with thirty two bit apps, and it took yeah. a long time. And that's the way it should be. Uh, you know, I think it took longer on the Mac than than uh, than it did on iOS. iOS uh, made the transition. Yeah quicker and that's the way it should be because the mac is you know it's just the nature of a desktop computing platform so i, I don't think apple made a wrong decision at all um it but, might have been too long it's like you know how sometimes you forget to plug in your ipad because the battery lasts so long you forget yeah. you have to plug this was like it was like 10 years and i yeah. think some companies are like oh they're never gonna do it we're safe you know that's that's funny you say that you know i didn't really think about that but i think you're right that, that there might have been it might have been too long i don't know but every time one of these transitions gets made or when something goes away you know it's a little sad you know yep. that there's you know uh it's that sad the drag thing doesn't run yes. anymore um you know there's some 32-bit stuff that isn't going to make the 64-bit transition and it's a bit sad but it was sad yeah. when classic went away i hadn't you know nobody who really what are your however fond your memories of classic mac os were and mine are super fond and there there yeah. are you know entire essays i could write about things of the user interface of the classic mac os that i still think were vastly superior to anything that's come since including mac os and ios um but running classic apps in Mac OS X was never a great experience. Never looked right. Never felt right. Uh, but once the the classic layer was removed from Mac OS X, it still was you know a poor one out moment. You know that yep. you can't even launch these things anymore without an emulation layer. Uh, for me personally, I, I I don't think there's anything that I use that's 32 bit. I went through. There's a way to check in. Uh, I think the best way because it's not just checking what's running. Like in in uh, the activity monitor, you can you can add the in activity monitor. You can go up to the view menu, I think, and in the columns that are displayed, you can display type, and it'll it'll say whether it's a sixty four or thirty two bit app. And if you sort by that column, you can see if you have any thirty two bit stuff running. If you go to about this Mac and then go to the system report, when you go to applications, it'll show all the applications that are installed on your system. 
in your applications folder, uh, which is a better way of seeing if you have anything laying around that, that won't run if you upgrade. And I think that even when you run the upgrader, the updater yes. from 10.14 to 10.15, it'll, it'll even then point out, hey, you've got this X, Y, and Z apps installed that won't run. You know, they're doing as much as you can. I, don't, I, yeah. I think it's a non-issue for the most part. <clears throat> because a lot I think, of plugins seem to get bit, especially audio plugins. Yeah, but that's a huge. Yeah, that seems like a huge thing. And I know a couple people who work on audio apps. Uh, seems like that's a really big deal and un- sort of unfortunate. I guess yeah. I, I don't know why they haven't made the transition. You would think they'd be actively maintained, but they're not. Oh yeah, I was I was wondering if Adobe was going to make it on time because Adobe right. they did. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and I, I have upgraded a machine. It's not my primary machine. And I know that one of the other things about Catalina that people are complaining about is that they've tightened up some of the, um, you, you know, it's it's that fine line between is it a security feature or a privacy feature? It's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Yeah. But, you, you, you know, they've they've made the desktop a magic location that apps have to have special permission, you know, like such and such, such app is trying to read... Uh, read files from your desktop uh the first time you launch an app that was already open when you upgraded and then and and had documents from the desktop the downloads file and the documents folder open at the time yeah and it tries to reload them god help you because it starts asking permission for every directory yeah. for every every file that you had open at the time <laughs> so there's you know it takes some getting used to i i really i have a rant in me about it like i kind of see why apple's doing this but it really doesn't play well in the context of that classic get a Mac ad yeah. where where the John Hodgman PC got upgraded to Vista and was, do you authorize this? Yes or no. Do you authorize that? Yes or no. You know, and and every, it'll only ask you once, but for every app. It'll only ask you if you want to download once, but for every website. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a lot. Uh, and it brings in... It, it, I get it. I get why they're doing this. I think some of these things are in response to actual malware attack vectors uh, that Apple is aware of. Uh, My son ran into one. I I think I talked about this on the show a year or two ago, but my son ran into one about two years ago, maybe 18 months ago, but it was really interesting where he somehow stumbled on a site or he clicked on something. It wasn't like super dubious. It wasn't like he was trying to download you know, crack games or something like that. Yeah. I forget, you know, he, but he could reproduce it. And, and there was a URL where he, it, it was like a fake Amazon result. And he, I guess he kind of clicked on it accidentally, but what it did is it went to, uh, it went to one of these sites claiming that your, uh, Mac had, it, that the site had detected that your Mac had malware and that's yep. why it was running slow. And that you needed to call this number, and I'm sure if you did call it, you know that they would do talk you into you know. There's everybody knows people who've had family members fall victim to this. Where you call them up and they talk you into installing like a a backdoor on your Mac. Yeah, um, just terrible stuff, terribly shifty stuff. But the the dubi- the the devious part of this website my son stumbled upon was what they were doing was sending your browser downloads of um, they were like empty text files or maybe they were like yeah. text files that contained four characters, like just, just literally just like, 
uh, uh, two or three characters, and and just, but they were sending them as fast as the, as yeah. they could. And Safari, even just a year or two ago, was willing to say, "Okay, you're going to send me all these downloads. I'll download them as fast as as fast as I can." Yeah. And just by downloading as many of these files as it could, as fast as it could, it made Safari really slow. It really was. It slowed down it, exactly as the website promised. It didn't install anything. It wasn't, you're, you, you know, there was no malware running on your machine. Yeah. But it slowed your browser down so fast that if you couldn't, if you didn't know, like, the trick to force quit Safari, um, it was tough to get out of. Like, it was so slow. It slowed Safari down so far, so fast that you couldn't really close the window. So yeah. you could, you know, totally see how people would fall for it. I'm, and I'm sure that there's a hundred other tricks that are similarly deep. A bunch of Google ad hijacks that would just send you to a, <clears throat> yeah. a fake website. Yeah. So there's all sorts of stuff, I'm sure, you know, that are out there. And But I, some of this stuff, though, it, it's like tightening up Safari, I get. Because I really do feel like, you know, you're, you're out you don't know what you're getting there. I feel like having apps that beg for permission to to read files off your desktop, I feel like that's over the line. I, I feel like I don't, I'm not quite sure what... And again, maybe I'm wrong and there there's apps that are taking advantage of this and just guessing that you have juicy personal stuff on your desktop and you know slurping all the data from it, but... It just seems contrary to the way that the Mac is designed well, they to work. try to mitigate it. Like if you double click or if you drag, it's an explicit user action. So that right. overrides the check. But it's just like when you do that reinstall and you already have stuff open, you don't have the opportunity to drag anything. So that's like the worst case scenario. It, and it's just it, it it's just so telling. You know, it's so much cleaner on even though iOS and iPadOS are are more still more limiting overall in terms of yeah. being able to use an app that can just see the real file system. And I know that you know there's the files app has beefed this up, and there's integration with with Dropbox. But if you're treating data as files, as opposed to just being a a library app, right? Like when you use Photos and you use the Apple Notes app, you don't treat the individual photos as files you don't treat notes as files they're just items in a in a library which yeah. is the sort of modern way to have multiple bits of data in an app and, and in a lot of cases it's it's great it's just conceptually simpler it's neater you're 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 successfully encapsulating the file system from the user it, it you're not missing anything by not having these in, you know your individual hundreds of notes as individual files in a file system but if you really do want to deal with documents in the traditional document mindset, uh, iOS's way is still limiting, right? And the Mac is yes. just natural. It's just the way, you know, the, when you boot up into a Mac, it still is the case where the default application that's running is the Finder, which is the file system app. Um, I feel like nannying all these decisions with, are you sure you want to let this app read from the desktop? Is just, it's just a pain in the ass. And I yeah. really kind of wish there were, if it's even if there is a good idea for this, I really wish that there was a developer mode, for lack of a better word. And I feel like the calling it developer mode would would properly scare scare the people off who shouldn't be turning it on, you know, as opposed to calling it advanced user mode or something. Yeah. Just call it developer mode, and it would turn off almost all of that stuff and just say, I trust that I'm not getting tricked into installing malware on my, on my Mac. Let me run the Mac the way I've 
was running it five, six years ago where I can write scripts and not have to have, not have to tell the, the system that terminal app has full disk ass access yeah. and stuff like that. Just call it they developer. Have a bit of that. Like they got rid of the option to run any app. Now there's only app store and certified apps. Uh, sorry. And, and right. uh, rid- but you can go into terminal and type in a command and it restores the button for right. run any app, but that's just one at a time. There's no right. like Konami code to unlock all of it. Right. I, I just feel like the way that this has been added over time to an, a design that is, you know, that is the way Mac OS X was originally conceived from the next era through the, the yeah. you know, the transition period in 2000, uh, circa 2000, let's say. It, it's resulted in this system where you have to do these things 100 times, you know, maybe that's an exaggeration, but you have to drag each app and drag, you know, into full disk access and you have to authorize this and authorize that. Whereas I really feel like there should be a way to, and you have to jump all over the system to get these different things, right? And There's, God bless them. Like Apple gets no exemption. I launched QuickTime for the first time and drew to a screen record. I had to launch settings, go in, right. check a box to and get then, QuickTime. To and then record. reload. And then it says like, yeah. if you want it to apply, you've got to quit and restart the app. Which is like very Skype or something. I really feel like there should be, a, they should take into account a way that if you really want to turn that stuff off, it's, it's either all one checkbox like an idea i had is you know how like right now you can in users and groups you can have administrator accounts and then you can have standard users and a standard user is limited in all sorts of ways where they can't delete apps they have to have an admin password well why not make in addition to an administrator account why not make a developer account and you can just have an entire account that's you know has all all the all the powers of an administrator plus the powers of a developer, which is mostly I trust the software on my Mac. Yes. Yeah. I'm a grown ass adult and I want to make these decisions. Right. I'm a, well, yeah. I'm an, or, you know, I'm an expert, you know, like, you yes. know, I'm an expert and I, I trust myself to control the software that's running on my Mac. And it's, it's a lot of little things too. Like I didn't notice this when I wrote my review, but I, I was using music and I right clicked and I said, oh, show me and find it. It worked fine. And then I went to podcasts and I wanted to get the actual file for the podcast. And I right clicked and that option doesn't exist because it's, it's a catalyst app. It doesn't, it's not aware of, I'm sure they could put it in, but they didn't. And so it's one less, it's one less feature that I use occasionally that's available to me. Well, that brings me to my next section, which is the catalyst griping. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, which could be an entire episode of the show and maybe will be in the coming weeks. But at the moment, you know, let's keep it short. Uh, well, shortish, short by the standards of a segment on this, this podcast. Um, the catalyst apps, I mean, there's two groups of them. I mean, there's Apple's own and then there's, uh, third party ones that are now in the app store. Yeah. Uh, the Apple ones are Home. Well, there's the, the ones that we had from last year. Yeah. Home, News and Stocks, which I consider one app because they're really sort of the same. Yeah. Stocks is just a, a version of news that has business-related news. Yeah. Voice memos and podcasts. Or I guess podcasts was, was, is new this year. So the four from last year, Home, News, Stocks, Voice Memos. Uh, all of these are weird and unmac like in their own ways. Uh, and people, including some people from Apple last year said, well, that's early given time. And then this year they didn't really look much improved at all. And Craig Federighi, I forget who he was, was it, who talking to Vitici? I mean, but 
after WWDC said, well, you know, these are design decisions. They're not. I asked him about it on stage at, at my yeah, live podcast. Yeah, talk show too, yeah. And he said, you know, they're not technical limitations. They're design limitations, which is sort of a euphemistic way of there's uh, there's untalented people designing these apps, <laughs> honestly. Or they were experimenting. But and then later on, he said, you know, but, you know, it's early in the beta. They'll improve by the end. Well, they didn't improve at all. I don't if they changed anything other than to fix bugs. I didn't I can't notice it. I mean, the home app still looks like an iOS app a lot. I mean, it even has the weird iOS like controls for the date yeah. picker. There were no design changes. They optimized a few things in terms of the mechanics of the apps, but the right. designs didn't change. And and that using iOS controls in a Mac app, especially one from Apple, it's it's mind blowing to me. I yeah. mean, part of what made the iPhone so great right from the get go was that they said at like a technical level, you know, we're building this. You know, it's like a stripped down version of OS ten, and and we've you know taken our Cocoa frameworks and made a new version for iOS. There was no leakage at all of anything that would, that would look like a Mac control on iPhone. Every single control that they had was, I mean, like push buttons are the one example of a thing that works pretty much the same on a touchscreen as on a mouse screen. Mm -hmm. But things like date pickers, or pop-up menus all had very, very iOS style controls. And even on the web, even in mobile Safari, they went out of their way to create every, take every single standard HTML user interface control, like pop-up menus and do them in an iOS way. And even today in 2019, where one of the flagship features, if not the flagship featured, in my opinion, of iPad OS 13 is desktop, desktop class browsing. Mm-hmm. Right where it it reliably asserts itself as Safari for Mac as opposed to Safari for iPhone, so that you get the Mac what you'd see on a Mac or any other desktop class browser in the iPad. Even though that's true, and I think it they've it's just absolutely my f- very favorite thing about iPad OS thirteen. The hardest thing yeah. that, that would that would drive me crazy if I had to go back to to iOS twelve on an iPad. Even so, they're not desktop-style controls, right? It renders the page that way, but you still get touch-optimized versions of these controls. They're not little tiny things that you need a pencil to pick. They have big, fat, finger-sized things that you can tap on. Everything is touch-optimized. So to take something that's not mouse-optimized at all and just stick it on the Mac almost literally unchanged, it's mind-boggling. It's just as offensive to me as as a ui connoisseur as it would have been if you had uh, every once in a while had a tiny little uh menu bar show up in an iphone app the original windows on tablets right <laughs> it just it's <laughs> mind-boggling to me yeah uh so the two new apps this year for catalina are find my and podcasts those are both yeah. catalina apps as well podcasts is the is the standout it looks the most like it's non-catalyst siblings, TV and music. Um, there's obviously a lot of confusion out there between what's catalyst and what's not catalyst. I mean, I know a lot of people think that the App Store app is catalyst because it is very iOS e. Yeah. There's an awful lot of things in the App Store app that, to me, are UI mistakes. 
but that they come across as iOS isms. I mean, the one that I, I just think it's I just think it's a bad decision is when you look at an app and you click uh, like in your updates and and you can click more to read the release notes. It opens up in a very iOS style panel that has no close button or done button. It just it just is like a rectangle on your screen, and the only way to close it is to click away. Which yeah, is, it's it's baffling. It's a very that's just bizarre from a Mac user's experience perspective of how a, a window or a sheet or anything like that would, would be dismissed. Like it's just strange, but anyway, yes. it's not a catalyst app app store app. However, you know, ultimately the user shouldn't have to know that's a key yep. point. Right. And so like 32 bit versus 64 bit typical user never had any idea, never should have had any idea. Swift when Swift became a, a way to make real Mac apps, there was no way to like double click an app and tell, oh, this app was written in Swift and this one was written in Objective C. Like the programming language is not something that a user should ever have to worry about. There were some tiny some things that you know you as an even as a non developer you could kind of get a hint. Like you can always in the Mac poke around in the you know click on the control click or right click whatever you want to call it on the dot app bundle show the package contests and poke around in there and look at the frameworks. And until recently, a, an app that used Swift, whether it was written entirely in Swift or partially in Swift, had to include the Swift frameworks within the app bundle because they weren't part of the system for technical reasons uh, that would that are irrelevant. So you could poke around as a user and just poking around the app bundle, tell if it used Swift or not. But as a typical user, there was no sign of it. Yeah, And that's how Catalyst should be. Catalyst should not be something that users have to think like, hey, I know that this app is on the iPad and it's on my Mac. Is this Catalyst or is it just an app kit app and a UI kit app for the iPad? You shouldn't have to know. Only developers should have to know. But the truth is you look at these Catalyst apps and they, they do stick out. There's telltale signs that these are Catalyst apps. Uh, and it's also it's, it's hilarious that if an app kit app does something bad, people just assume it's Catalyst. <laughs> it's very true. It's very telling. So the podcast app. So people are confused. People think of music, TV, and podcasts are all yeah. Catalyst apps. They're not. The music and TV apps are effectively two forks of the old iTunes app. And you know, <laughs> I love. I just love. I almost feel like it's a troll from Apple that the preferences window is still a modal dialog box. <laughs> <laughs> like they rewrote so much of those apps to make them look new and to separate stuff, and yet they still have a modal dialog box, which is just wonderful. It's amazing to me. It's all of these apps, even like the podcasts and music and TVs. If you if you open up any list view or, or grid view and you click into anything, you get this whole row that all it has is a back button in it, a little yeah circle, and that back you go back and it just blanks you back into the grid like on ios the title becomes the title of the master view becomes the title right. of the detail view and it slides you back and forth so you're spatially aware here it's just oh we're going to throw an entire row up there stick a little button in and then cross fade you in and out yeah and it's it's across all the apps and it's baffling to me too and it's yeah it just doesn't read well as a mac no. but then there's other things in the podcast app that are just telltale signs that this it, it just would never imagine a mac app let alone a mac app from apple that doesn't support this so like you go into the episodes of a show and it lists them and you click on one you can use shift and an arrow key to extend the selection and select multiple episodes yeah. right now there's a thing you think oh that's cool because you know 
that's the thing you expect to be able to do in a Mac app with a list view is select multiple items by shift arrowing or command clicking on discontinuous ones. So you can select numbers one and three, but not two. Um, But guess what? If you hit command a, which you would expect to select all the episodes, nothing happens. Like command a just isn't hooked up, which is like, it, I guess it's an oversight, you know. I, I bet they fix it because the podcast app really, really goes out of its way to be as Mac-like yeah. as it possibly can. But you, the reason it sticks out is that support for Command A as select all in a list view isn't something that's part of the beauty of Coco and the AppKit yeah. frameworks. Is that the reason that brand new apps never had? Oh, we forgot about hooking up Command A. Is that they didn't have to remember it yes. because it just came for free with AppKit. Right, like that's why you can't remember even a brand new app that didn't have s- support for select all, <laughs> because it came for free, and you didn't have to keep this checklist of fifty, sixty, a hundred standard little things that we have to hook up manually yeah. because they don't come across for free. Because Command A for select all isn't a thing on UIKit on iOS. I also mentioned that you can't right click and go to see the file in Finder because there's no there's no directory. All my directories that had podcasts in are empty now, and they're all in some <laughs> slash library slash podcast slash cache file. Right. It's and that's just. I realize you know maybe that's the future we're heading towards, but it, it, to me, it's a future that would be best provided by a a either an iPad os device or another ios device that is ios on a laptop form factor not mac os like what mac os is to me is inextricably tied to being if if you want like i think it's great that it's evolved in a way for casual users that they don't really have to interact with files in the file system often but if you want to you should be able to and in an app like that where you know the back end is a file like an image in photos or uh, a, a podcast episode in a podcast player, you expect to be able to get to it in the finder somehow by, and, and the way that I, you know, the most obvious thing to try that I would try is what you just tried is right clicking on it. And then you expect a reveal and finder menu item and you yeah. expect it to open a finder window and there it is. And yeah. it doesn't and work. Not so much. <laughs> right. And I get it. Like, uh, you know, when, when they move to Swift, you know, Swift is going to be a multi-year transition. APFS is going to be a multi-year transition. Catalyst is going to be a multi-year transition. And next year's will be better than this year's. It's just these feel so much more palpable because they're the apps that you're dealing with now. I think most casual users never see APFS. They never see Swift. But boy, do they see like home, home.app in front yeah. of them. So it, you, you, you were watching the sausage getting made. And I don't think we're used to that. Yeah, and you know, I don't know. I played with the Twitter app a little bit, and it's not horrible. And I guess I'm. I guess I would have to agree that it is better to have this Twitter app with a bunch of deficiencies that I would consider just standard in a Mac app than no Twitter app at all. Um, but it is particularly galling to me with Twitter because I'm I'm open and 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 sensitive to the idea that like for a one or two person developer shop yes that maintaining fewer apps and less small a smaller code base is a huge advantage and that maybe it is the difference between being able to offer a mac app and not and only having an ios and ipad app uh 
Twitter doesn't have that excuse. Twitter is a billion dollar company with like 3000 yeah. employees. Like what the hell are they doing? Uh, and in, in addition to the fact that they can't beg poor, right. They can't say we can't yeah. afford to have a Mac development team. They're they're They, when they acquired Tweety and Lauren Brichter yeah. back in the day, they acquired a one person. Now, again, Lauren Brichter is a friend and a fine fellow and an yeah. ingenious UI designer and an incredibly talented developer and is exceptional in all those regards, including just being a good person. He really yeah. is an exceptional person. I, I realize that that's, you can't expect everybody to be a Lauren Brichter, but it was a one-person company that had a great iPhone app, a great real Mac app, and not just a great iPad app, but still to this date, arguably the most innovative user interface in an yep. iPad app that anybody's ever created that was pushing the boundaries that even Apple had defined for the experience of a multi-level app and how you would navigate the depth of the hierarchy you were at and how you would indicate the depth of the hierarchy you were at all from one person. <laughs> and now yeah. we're told that Twitter can't, couldn't afford to keep up a Mac app. And so this is great. Now they'll have a Mac app because they can use their iOS app and you, we get this garbage. And it's, it's funny because you mentioned Ben Sandowski before. How his old job was doing the entire Twitter for Mac app. It's, it's like... This, it, <laughs> They've never invested in it. It's perplexing. Yeah, it's it, uh, and I remember when they had it was you knew I knew the writing was on the wall, and I'm a I'm a, a Tweetbot user myself, both uh, yeah. Mac and iOS. So part of it, I'm not too concerned, you know, because my use of Twitter isn't that affected. Um, but I would like to see the the native Twitter app be as good as possible. Uh, just on general principle and you realize that that's what most people are going to use. But I knew the writing was on the wall when they added the, uh, the notification support for Twitter stuff in the system multiple versions ago. Yeah. And when you'd click on it, even if you had the Twitter Mac app installed, it would open <laughs> in the twitter.com website. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember asking about Apple about that and they were like, well, that's off the record. That's what Twitter wanted. Yeah. Like it wasn't Apple's decision, it was Twitter's. So even if you had the Mac app and you opened like a, a DM notification, it would open the DM in the, in the website, even though you have the, yeah. their app installed. Yeah, and even I, I use Tweetbot all the time too, but they keep changing Twitter just in ways that degrade the experience. Like they can no longer just pull up a thread anymore. You have to do all these complex moves to try to reassemble the thread. And yeah. sometimes it doesn't work. So you you can't even see replies to your own message sometimes. It's just, yeah, and they, it's so frustrating. Yeah, it's like... I, I don't know. I, I'd still use it, but yeah, for like reading a, a thread, especially a thread with that's even just a day or two old. Like so, like yeah. the the because they can't just pull up the thread; they only can show the messages in the thread that they already have cached. Yeah. Um, and so, if you somebody is showing you a tweet from somebody you don't even follow, you have to go to the website or Twitter app. Uh, yeah. You know. Anyway, I, I just don't think it's a great app. I don't think it's a great selling point of Catalyst. But it's, you know, maybe overall it's better than I feared. I guess yep. that's my take so far on Catalyst is that it seems like it's better than I feared. Uh, I think the potential's there. I think Apple's, I think the biggest question I have isn't whether Catalyst is is a good or bad idea in principle. It is why did they decide it was worth shipping when they did? 
because I don't yeah. think it's even this year. I feel like it's a little iffy and an awful lot of the apps that are the best examples of it seem to have to jump out of UI kit into app kit, which seemingly defeats the whole purpose of doing it in the first place. Yeah. Well, this year in general, I feel like last year was such a good balance of new features and going back and just maintaining, like, you know, paying down foundational debt. Yeah. And this year it feels like they tried to catch up and it was just too much. And we've seen that just splatter all over the releases recently. And I, you know, and they probably thought, you know, they would get all of this stuff done. I don't know how they thought that, but I hope we can just, I think last year was a much better pace. And if we could just stick to that pace, we won't get as many new features every year, but the ones that we do get will be better and the older ones will be maintained better. And I think that's just a much better plan going forward. Uh, yeah, I hope so. Uh, it's, it, it is an interesting year over year, um, uh, difference where it really was yeah. did seem like last year's hey we're focused on performance you know and bug fixing and making stuff smaller and just more reliable and working you know getting this older you know if we support five years back we want this uh, version of ios on a five-year-old phone to still run great and they did it and it was like wow yeah. this is unbelievable and then the next year probably i don't know inarguably inarguably is too strong a word but by consensus the buggiest year in recent memory and a lot of the stuff, again, I, was, I also have this thinking that instead of announcing this is what we're shipping for iOS 13, this is what we're shipping for Catalina, this is the next year of iOS. This is the next right. year of Catalina. And take the pressure off having to ship everything in September. And if some stuff comes off in October, if some stuff comes up in September, in December, if some stuff ships in March, that's fine. Yeah. This is what you're going to get. It's a roadmap for the next year. Yeah, and I would like to see it. I, I've, I would really like to see... Mac OS in particular, I really don't feel like needs an annual update. Yeah. And I don't know how now that they've gotten into that pattern. And it seems it it seems like somebody at Apple is gonna listen to me say this and they're gonna say, Well, we <laughs> there's no way we can make you happy. Because, you know, maybe a few years ago when they weren't on an annual update, people maybe even me in particular were complaining that the Mac wasn't getting updated frequently enough. I, I <laughs> I'm, I'm just make them less audacious updates. Like make right. sure that they, whatever features you need to be parallel with iOS, do that. But don't you don't have to do. I'll be happy with five amazing things. I don't need right. ten things that are struggling to ship. Right. Uh, to me, the stuff that I only thing I get it that iOS is on an annual update because the hardware is on an annual update, right? And and that's important to Apple financially right now, and it's important in the competitive landscape. It's just cell phones are you know they're just so they're just so big, so much bigger than yeah. everything else. And so if there's a new iPhone every September and they're really, you know, of course, technically, if they didn't have an iPhone next year in September, it wouldn't be the end of the world for the company, but it would certainly be bizarre and a sign that something had gone terribly wrong. So there, you know, for some definition of has to, there has to be a new iPhone every September. And if there has to be a new iPhone every September, there has to be a new version of iOS. And it would be really, really hard to separate just the hardware specific stuff that requires a new version from the feature related stuff. Um, but it just bleeds over to now, if we're going to do a Mac OS version two, all of the new features that are Mac specific, we have to do at the same time that we do the features like sidecar, which yeah. obviously by definition needs the Mac to go to get new stuff in, in addition to the iOS stuff at the same time. Or the new reminders has to sync yeah. between iOS and Mac OS. It, 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 I would like to see them just 
put the Mac on the annual update cycle just for those features that have yeah. to be updated to keep pace with iOS and let the other stuff on the Mac take as much time as it takes to get right. And yeah. just let the Mac as the more mature, you know, by however you want to define it, it's decades old platform, you know, let it be the mature platform that it is that doesn't need to change radically uh, or, or yeah, radically is the wrong word, but doesn't need to change at as fast a pace as, as, as a mobile operating system does. Yeah, no, totally agreed. And even with iOS, I mean, we get already some features don't come until the, the point one release, like the new emoji and things like portrait mode and, uh, and, and deep fusion just make that the norm know exactly yeah. what you can ship in september and then have other features because they're going to do an update in march anyway so just stage out those features and we'll be fine yeah yeah i totally agree and, and hopefully i you know I, I can't imagine that internal to apple there's not going to be some sort of you know hey let's let's do a post-op on uh you know yeah Let's make sure a postmortem on this and figure out where where did we go wrong? How early? How do we detect it next year? How do we better better estimate what will be done at at a certain time? And how do we better separate stuff that needs to be done for fourteen point oh in September and stuff that can wait? And how do we sort of stage them out? Totally, you know, someone's going to go. You jackass! I said there's nothing wrong or unlucky about thirteen. Now look what happened. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I've had people send me that. Like, how come you're not talking yeah. about that? And it's like, do you read my stuff at all? Do you realize how? I'm, <laughs> like, I'm the opposite. I get annoyed every time I look at an elevator and don't see a 13. I'm so mad. Yes. I'm so mad. Yeah. I'm like, it is a mar. <laughs> you know, this this giant skyscraper is a marvel of engineering, and yet we're going to cater to the nitwits who think that yes, the 13th floor would be unlucky. Yeah. Uh, anyway. I'm going to wrap it up. That's a good show. Yes, Renee, it's always good to talk to you. People can uh, read you on Twitter at, at uh, your handle is Renee Ritchie. Yes. You, you write it. I'm more, you've got your, your pod or not your podcast. Your, your, well, you do have podcasts too, but yeah. you're a man of many talents, but the big <laughs> thing I know you're pouring a lot of work into, and it really shows is vector your show on YouTube. What's the Thank best you. way to get to vector youtube.com uh, slash vector. Yep. That's it. Yeah. And it's not spelled funny or anything like that. Just nope, V-E-C-T-O-R. Lots of work there. Looks good. You're doing so good there. It's really, oh, thank you um, so much. I re- you, you enjoy it? You like the YouTubing? Yeah, I love it. It's just after so many years of blogging, I, it's just another way to tell stories. Um, and I, I, I've been editing since I was younger. It's just a great way to tell a story these days. Yeah. Well, it's great stuff. So my thanks to having you here. Always good to talk to you. Thank you. And, uh, you too. My thanks for our sponsors this week. Uh, three classics. Three of the three of the stalwarts of the talk show sponsorship, uh, Squarespace, where you can go to build a website, uh, Eero, where you can set up a home network, saturate your whole home with great Wi-Fi, and Away, where you can get a great suitcase, especially their great carry-on, which I, I recommend wholeheartedly. My thanks to them. All right, adios, Renee.